0: Hi everybody, this is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today and I'm joined as always and forever with the good, the wonderful, the, the ever-gray, ever-green? No,
1: ever-gray, Jason Johnston Yellen, the Whiskey Wizard. The, this is what happens in Lord of the Rings when Gandalf comes back as Gandalf the White.
0: Yes, and, and, there's, and what are they, he says... Who says it to him? Shit, who's one of the hobbits? And he says, Gandalf, and he says, oh yes, I did go by that name.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good moment, I like that one. Although, yeah, when they're coming through the forest and it looks like they've come upon Sauroman. Yes. And then when the lights were ro- behind him, and then once you break that light, you get to see, oh, it's the wizard who used to go by Gandalf.
0: I almost feel bad for people like myself who saw <laughs> who who went to the movies to watch Lord of the Rings and there really were no surprises because I had just, you know, read the books until the, the bindings fell off. I mean, mm-hmm. granted, the, the movies did veer a bit here and there, but not too much. Things were left out here and there. But when that... Tom Bombadil. Oh, God damn it. You want, you want to grind my gears? You want to get my gears grinding? But when that scene popped up, I said, oh, yep, there's that part where where Gandalf reappears as Gandalf the White. And while other people were saying, oh my gosh, is it going to be Saruman? Nope, I knew.
1: And that's why I feel sorry uh, for myself. I, no, I like that aspect. I, I actually felt bad for my kids because... They were granted permission to watch the movies before reading the books. Not not by me. Someone else in the family. And <laughs> and I felt and I felt like that's it. That's that over. And so then the thirteen year old started reading the series, right. got two thirds of the way through it and went, Yeah, I know how it ends. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, that's 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 a good point. That's not right. That's not how this works. But anyway, we're we're not we're not here to talk. Lord of the Rings, you know, just like we're never here to talk Indiana Jones or any of the other nonsense that we, that we utter, but we are here for a, a special event, Joshua, mm-hmm. an annual special event.
0: Mm-hmm. What is that? This, Jason, is our fourth annual mailbag episode. What does that mean? When we do our mailbag episode, what does that tell you as a podcaster what is, that, what is that hinting at
1: to you? It tells me that the season has been, mm. and the season shall be no more. But on the horizon, a bit like Gandalf, the white, a new season shall come forth <laughs> from the east, and blood shall be spilled this <laughs> night.
0: Oh my gosh! But if so long as they make it into Helms Deep, they have a chance of
1: holding off the orcs. Do you ever do you ever say that when you if you say now I'm Helms Deep?
0: The other day, Jason, you and I were talking, and I had said it's kind of strange that we're having an episode and there's no guests. And you had mm. said. Joshua, mm. our listeners are our guests on this
1: episode, and that's that is a very, very good point. Yes, yes. I t- to this to this very moment, I still get upset when I hear you speak like that. <laughs> and if we were in person, I would be taking the back of my hand to your face. Mm. But it's the only way you learn. I think we've both learned that over ten years. <clears throat> Got got dark. It got real dark. <laughs> what are we doing? Joshua? Were you just we're speaking
0: truth doing? to power there about how you beat me? Anyway, listen. Do you want to talk about <laughs> clapping back? <laughs> we have a bunch of mail to get to. Some were emails, some were Instagram messages. We even got some texts from people. But mm-hmm. before we get to these questions, I'd like to talk about what's in our glass because I see you sipping on some amber nectar. And I've got a wee bit of amber nectar in my
1: glass here. What, what do you got going on? Yeah, I wanted to use this occasion to delve back into my what whiskey, Manic Moor. Hmm. I just think it's an exceptional whiskey. And as I sit here chatting away with you and, and as we'll get into these emails, it's such a beautiful accompaniment to conversation. And I think good whiskey ought to be a good accompaniment to conversation. I think one of the things, you know, we've talked about 2020 being a difficult year. I think one of the the difficulties that we had, um, if you think of the expression breaking bread, we we get together and we break bread. Mm. I think for for you and I and our, our industry friends and you know, many members of the nation we don't get together and break bread we get together and pour whiskey Mm. Mm -hmm. and it's in pouring that whiskey that we have those conversations we experience the camaraderie of friends and whiskey yeah yeah it's a wonderful time and so so this this just speaks to that type of occasion for me and so i'm really excited to have it in my glass i it's all too easy to polish it off as well. It goes down very easily, which actually has me looking very quickly. Fifty-seven for the one, ABV. Right? You're close. Fifty-four point eight. I got one number right, <laughs> and I think that was lucky. And so, ah. so that that's what I'm I'm imbibing on that. And that's only where I'm starting. There will be more drams poured. A bit like our year in review episode this mm. just becomes a, a celebration a chance to hang out wax lyrical yep. and pour some drams over our throats so what have you got there
0: well like you pouring whiskey from, from our friends Mark and Kate Watt I'm pour I poured some whiskey from our friend David Stirk. Ah and yeah and so what I have and I was I thought I needed something to mark this occasion and what i've got in the glass here is the exclusive blend the 40 year old 10 years per year of our podcast right see what i did there smart very smart i think it's from a single cask it's uh it's a blended malt from a single sherry butt and it's bottled at 42.9% alcohol and it's one of the it's one of those whiskeys that you Imagine you are in a study sitting in a mahogany chair and someone smoking a pipe. Like total old school whiskey. And I find old school whiskeys to be very comforting.
1: I hear you. I hear you. Well, we're we're definitely going for a similar aesthetic with our whiskey choices, Mm -hmm. with this sense of Sitting in a in a drawing room, sitting among friends, sitting beside a roaring fire. Sitting on the bench. That's that's what we're aiming for here. This is the goal. So, without further ado, should we invite in our first guest? I would love
0: to invite in our first guest, who will be. Our guest, are you bringing them in
1: or shall I? I would love to. I would love to open the door for them. So we're leaning on a person known to many of our listeners as Balancer, (laughs) who signs his Sunday name here, Anthony Rivera. So Anthony Rivera has written in. And this kind of shows... How well you and I have been doing with answering email questions on regular episodes of the podcast. He wrote in 12 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) He has written in man and child. So Anthony, known to to me as Balancer, Mm -hmm. to you as Balancer, Mm -hmm. to -hmm. our listeners as Balancer, I've asked this question before. You may, in fact, intend on answering this during the mailbag questions episode. look at him. He knew. Prescient. Yeah. Yes. But I really want to understand the following. What does the tasting note rich mean to each of you? It's the only tasting note on the side of your bottles that I feel may have a different meaning from person to person. Notes like floral, sweet, nutty and others on the bottle are pretty direct and easy to understand. But rich is the one that makes me think a bit. I believe that Joshua does not care for the term smooth when describing a whiskey. As for me, I would put rich in the same area of description as smooth. Hmm. Not looking to stir things up, just want to have a better understanding of the term. Plus, I'm curious if what my idea of rich is may be similar to what you're trying to get across. And now, unfortunately, Antony doesn't go on to say what his idea of Rich is, so we will have to dip our toe into the pool first, and then he may jump in afterwards.
0: Well, I, I do wonder something. <laughs> when, when we... Well, I know what Rich means to me, and, and I'll, I'll go into that in a second. But quite often, when we talk about food or wine or something like that, and like let's take let's take cheesecake, for instance, right? When I eat cheesecake, mm-hmm. which I rarely do, because I find it too rich uh, Rich I sometimes think, oh, it's got a richness to it, and richness mm-hmm. to me. It's not shorthand, but it's sort of an alternate word for Moorish, mm-hmm. meaning there's an intensity there. And so with cheesecake, there's just an intensity of, of flavors. There's that fattiness. There's that sweetness coming through. And it's, it's uh, I guess another word would be almost like uh, uh, decadent, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Decadency mm-hmm. to it. And so uh-huh. that's what I think of when I think of the word rich. However, as we're talking aloud, I can almost see it being used as an adjective, right? Where what it should be is rich floral notes, rich multi notes, right? A rich peatiness or something like that. So...
1: Would yeah. you even say rich smoke?
0: I guess I would, right? If, if you would say rich peatiness. And so rich, in this case, would be almost like shorthand for a lot of, right? There's a lot of maltiness, a lot of smokiness. Uh, so I guess if you just say rich, now that he's forcing me to think about it, it's
1: like an orphan word. Potentially I think it can be in one instance Mm -hmm. For for me though And it's interesting that you would choose Cheesecake as your example When I think of Cheesecake and like you I think rich I'm also thinking of that Texture I'm thinking of a heaviness Hmm. A weightiness An unctuousness Where you're kind of saying just like you did a moment ago Boy I better strap in, this is going to be serious business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so on one hand, I think there is something of a texture component to this. But then, as you're also alluding to when it comes to flavour, when I think of rich malt, I think, oh, that's going to have complexity. That's going to have additional layers to it. Mm -hmm. And so I can think of some... Say, well, I, I can think of a Highland single malt mm-hmm. that has a lovely malty presence to it, but it demonstrates more as cereal grain and comes across as quite grassy. Okay, right. Whereas I could also think of Glenfarclas being quite rich and quite you know heavy with the malt, but it also brings the sherry. The Mm. sherry elevates the maltiness. So it becomes a rich maltiness, but then also with dark fruits around it and dark chocolate around it. Mm. And I think of those flavor profiles heightening the experience and leading me to talk about a richness to the enterprise. But see, as you're explaining that, you're attributing
0: a richness to a characteristic of a whiskey. Richness, again, is not standing on its own, right? You, you you attributed a richness to the malt. You attributed the richness to the sherry. You attributed it to a mouthfeel. And Balancer's point is a really good one is I'm looking at the side of... I have our Kleinleisch 9 in front of me, and I'm looking at our flavometer, and on the flavometer... You have floral, mm. sweet, rich, nutty, spicy, earthy, smoky, yeah, and woody, yeah. and and now <laughs> it's making me wonder if we need to rethink that rich. Replace it with smooth. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't replace it with proof. <laughs> You'd have to double it. Uh, but but I think
1: but, but here's the thing. Mm. If I was to hand you a, a whiskey and I would say to you, tell me if you think this is rich. You would know what I was going for, right? You would know that I was going for uh, an intensity, a a heightened experience in the overall whiskey. And you might come back and you could say, oh yeah, that that is rich malt, or oh, that's rich fruits. You you would then put some leaves on the branches. But But I think if you came at it saying, this is a rich whiskey, you would have a jumping off point. I think you'd have a jumping off point,
0: but I think similar to smooth, it requires further explanation. You know, it's almost making me wonder if the word rich is as useless as the word smooth is. When people say smooth, you dig a little deeper, what they're saying is, Oh, there's a bit of an oily texture here. I'm not feeling the alcohol burn. You know, something like that. You have to dig deeper at all times to get to what smooth means. And so I think similarly, you've got to do a bit of digging to see what rich means within the context of each individual whiskey. Maybe it's not as useless as smooth, because smooth is pretty fucking useless. But... uh, but I can see Balancer's point. I can see. Well, oh, I can
1: absolutely. Point. I I can, and if we're if we're going to identify the flavometer, right? Floral, you get sweet, you get nutty, you get spicy, you get earthy, smoky, oaky. Mm-hmm. Rich to me says there's a lot going on in here, and maybe yeah, maybe maybe it's time to get rid of it.
0: Or replace it with something that has uh, a bit more meaning behind it. God damn it, Balancer. Thank you for your question.
1: <laughs> You've given us work to do. <laughs> Let's replace Rich with oomph. 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 Oh, oomph. Has it got oomph? Yeah. Yeah, it's got, oomph. Yeah, it's got, it's got a oomph. lot of oomph. <laughs> there we go. There you go. There we go. <laughs> we're, we're both just stating at each other now because we're we're thinking, yeah, maybe we need to update that flavometer. Yeah. Didn't think we'd be starting here. No,
0: no, me either. Next
1: question. <laughs> Thanks, we'll Balancer. On. Seriously, Thanks for seriously in.
0: though, Anthony, your your question and your comments are were, were great, and and yeah. has us thinking. So thank you, thank you for that.
1: That's all we've ever asked of the nation, right? Keep mm-hmm. us honest. Yep,
0: yep. I mean, you're you're still a lying bastard. So, but you know, still a lying bastard. A lying bastard.
1: Oh right. <laughs> Took a turn. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you who's not a lying bastard. Whoever wrote our next question. <laughs> so I've got an
0: email here from uh, the good Ariel Green, who's written in before. Indeed, indeed. And the subject of the email simply states "gluten-free whiskey." Ariel says J J and J. I have a question for you about gluten-free whiskies. I owe a favor to one of my coworkers and want to get them a bottle of something, but he has celiac and he says he's understandably unable to drink most whiskies. I was hoping you might be able to recommend some readily available whiskies that are made purely from corn or some other gluten-free grain that I could get him a bottle of. I might also consider a rum or mezcal, but I'm less well-versed in those subjects. And although I've been exploring rum a little bit, I am hoping to keep it in the $50 range, since it isn't a huge favor that I owe him for.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Ariel Green. I just want to know... I was just missing a parenthetical comment. It's not like you killed a guy. (laughs) Yeah, what, what kind of favor would be a $50 favor? If, if you took care of my cat for a weekend, I'd, I'd, I'd hook you up with a $50 favor. So you're saying a week's worth of cat sitting is worth 50 bucks? Weekend.
0: Oh, weekend. Yeah, I, I would go that far.
1: Remembering a time when we could leave the house for mm. a weekend at mm-hmm, a time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was a radical time, a crazy time. What would you give somebody a fifty buck bottle favor for? Um hmm.
0: <laughs> If if they if they picked me up from the airport.
1: I picked you up from. Oh, I guess I've also got bottles from you. Yeah, but I give you plenty
0: <laughs> every time you pick me up
1: from the airport. I get yeah, you a bottle a of did, Yeah, <laughs> it is funny you say that. Every time I see you, you have a bottle for me, but I didn't put two and two together. There okay. you go. Huh? So if someone picked you up from the airport, you'd you took them up with a fifty dollar bottle.
0: Yeah, unless they were in a twelve step program, then I'd get them something else. But yeah, I, you know, I'd, I'd consider a, a nice bottle as a gift.
1: All right.
0: <laughs> so question for you, Jason. What yeah. what would you recommend as as a
1: gluten free whiskey? Well my understanding and in speaking to producers, there's no gluten in distilled spirits. Mm-hmm. The, the the gluten is there in the grain, but it doesn't Transfer through the process, correct, and 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 you know, and that's certainly not to to question this friends situation. If if alcohol, uh, if distilled spirits are affecting them in some way, then that's that's happening, and yeah. and I feel bad for them in that regard. Mm-hmm. At that point, you might you might want to you know us Joshua, gosh, if yeah. you've got any issue with anything that comes from grain drink mezcal right that's we're we're gonna go right there and if yeah and that that's a category that's so worth exploring um in terms of even the corn distillation you're not really gonna find 100 percent corn you know like like who who's doing 100 percent corn well right so there's there's a
0: couple of issues here first off there's only one 100% corn whiskey I know of, and that's made by Balcones. And I don't think they do it with any regularity. I think it's called True Blue. And the fact of the matter is they may be using enzymes to kick off the fermentation process. because Exactly. You, you really need, you know, this is, this is why uh, a lot of grain producers like grain whiskey producers are doing a 90-10 split of 90% corn, 10% malted barley, or 90% wheat, 10% malted barley. You need the yep. enzymes that that are with malt that to, to, to kickstart that process. And then the other thing is, let, let's say that that Balcones works for them. The problem is that bottle exceeds your $50 price tag. It's a, it's a specialist item. Right, it's a specialist item. Now, there is mellow corn put out by Heaven Hill, which is a $15 to $18 bottle, but my understanding is that is just a very high corn mash bill, and the whiskey has been matured in used like ex-bourbon casks rather than new charred. so that's not going to get them there. I, I want to go down the road met of mescal, but before we do... What has me thinking is, if this person has tried to drink whiskey and has, excuse me, and has been experiencing problems related to drinking that whiskey, it's not the gluten, because again, there's no gluten in pure distilled products. I wonder if A, it was a flavored whiskey, or B, it was a whiskey with caramel coloring. That could potentially cause some issues, or if there's some other compound coming out of the grain that isn't gluten that also affects his friend. Um, so that's, that's something to think about. But if, if you're looking to go the route of whiskey, I would at the very least look at something that's 46% and above and that says that it's non-chill filtered, natural color, or no color added. That way you can rule out the possibility of caramel coloring being the uh, the bad player here. So for mescal, one of the issues with mezcal is it's getting more and more popular, which means we're Indeed reaching a supply and demand issues here. However... I think there's there's two that come to my mind that I think would be sub-15. Correct me if I'm wrong. Del Delmaguey Vida. Is that like a $35, $40 mm-hmm.
1: bottle? Yep, yep. And yep. 35 to
0: before tax here in Virginia. I buy it for my Mezcal cocktails. Okay. And then uh, Fidencio Classico. And both, I think, are Espedine. Is Vida Espedine?
1: It is, yeah. It is.
0: So maybe that's it. Maybe he's got to look for mezcals from the espadine agave because that's a cultivated agave, meaning it's readily available and, you know, it's not wild agaves that are rare and can be very precious and so on.
1: Yeah, and and while, yes, as you move away from the espadines and you explore other agave types, you get a different range of flavors, you get a different experience for the reasons you've just outlined, Joshua, you end up with an increased price on it as well, and you're also looking at small batch, small batch production costs, bringing it to market. It's it's hard to find, and and that's why it surprises me that Vita can be found for thirty five before tax. It's it's a crazy good price, and 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 well worth drinking. Yeah, perfectly enjoyable. So, yeah. Uh, that, that that would be my recommendation. Play it safe. Respect whatever's happening with your friend. Know that whiskeys are going to be tough because of some enzymatic content that goes into fermentation. And introduce some or surprise them with some mezcal.
0: And if you want to go down the rum route, my one suggestion would be do a little bit of research here. Make sure you're getting a pure rum meaning that there's no sugar being added to it because most rums do have sugar being added. Um, so, so look for that. Black Tot is one, but, you know, full disclosure, I'm with the company that imports Black top, but that's around a $55 bottle. There are other rums you could look at that don't have sugar or caramel color being added. Google's your friend. Look for a pure rum, something that doesn't have the additives in there. But keep in mind, too, that with rum, you need the enzymes to kick off the fermentation process. Uh, with mescal, I don't think enzymes are being used. There's just sort of natural fermentation happening after the agave is, is roasted and crushed. So,
1: Well, and, and think of some of those rums that are using the dunder, right? And the dunder is some of that naturally fermented wild yeast that gets thrown back into mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the beginning of the process. So yeah, it's it's tough. I really feel I feel bad for the person that, gosh, I, I look around my desk alone and I think, gosh, if I couldn't drink any of this because whatever was in it was negatively impacting me. There are some times if, if I drink all day, the next day I'll have a little bit of a headache. I don't know if you've ever experienced such a thing. Like if you just really hit it hard, mm. you just drink all day and then day. into the night, yep. stagger you know, to your bedroom, fall into your bed. Mm-hmm. Some Sometimes I'll get a little bit of a headache the next day.
0: Yeah, that happens to me sometimes, but it's usually... So part of the... One of the things you're missing is you stagger up to the bathroom, you fall, you hit your head on the sink... You stand up to take a pee. You fall backwards into the bathtub. You hit your head on the wall there. You finally make it back into your bed. You wake up in a bloody pool. uh, And you have a little bit of a headache.
1: (laughs) Hashtag, please drink responsibly. (laughs) As we're talking about drinking responsibly. (laughs) Yes, please drink responsibly. Don't do any of the stuff that we joked around about. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> our Our good friend here, Tim Mushaw mm. has written in. and he's he's always wonderful with the, with his contributions. And I, I do actually want to just say very quickly before we go on to his question, when it comes to our private members only Facebook group, Tim is such a wonderful, wonderful member of that group. There have been many times where he has answered a question in such a way that I no longer have to. And <laughs> I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. Then I just get to go, oh, there was that question. Oh, Tim gave a great answer. I'm going to turn off Facebook and go and do whatever it was I was planning on doing before this happened. So mm-hmm. I, I greatly, greatly appreciate Tim. He's always making wonderful recommendations. He's Always willing to to signpost for for new members as well. He's he's just really good in the group, and I just want to give him his props on that. Yes, we've got literally hundreds of people who are really good in the group. Tim, I really appreciate your contribution. Cheers, man.
0: And I, I appreciate you uh, giving, giving me a nod as, as the group admin. I really appreciate you doing that. So, yeah. yeah.
1: I, I didn't want to say if you did a better job of answering questions, <laughs> Tim wouldn't have to do such a good job, but I just thought I'd let sleeping dogs lie. I didn't think that had to be said. I just left it implied. But, but I, 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 we'll, we'll circled back to it, and that's fine. That's all right. Tim writes, Greetings, Jay. Slash J. Slash J. Hmm. I forget when the question and answer episode is coming out. Spoiler alert. It's right now. But I had some questions for you. I was talking with a friend of mine. We had recently bought bottles of a cask strength American whiskey. Side comment. Not SCN in this case. I I spent all that time saying wonderful things about him. And then he... Then he slaps me in the face like this. Can we just move on? Just I, I've got another wow. email. Or no? Wow, Tim. Wow. Oof. Thought you had my back there. <laughs> so the the friend of Tim's uh, found it had too much of an alcohol burn.
0: Hmm.
1: Yesterday he said he had it again, and it had oxidized enough that he really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. He had left the bottle uncorked for a couple of weeks on his shelf a technique he's done before to quote-unquote improve whiskies for his palate huh. my questions are have you heard of this technique <laughs> not in so many words what do you think is happening in the bottle and what is your opinion of it is this something you would do or have done? Wow. Uncorked is a new wrinkle on an old position. It really is you know and, and let me before before you go on. okay I okay. just would I want to bring in a, an email that came in from Natalie Wiesenbaum uh, mm. in Seattle dear dear friend uh, who opens and I think the only way you really can open one of these emails. <laughs> kind of Jess, Joshua and Jason. I think if you re- reverse the order of the second and third, I think you've got a success on your hands. <laughs> and this 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 I think ties into what we've commonly heard around the issue that Tim has brought up. Okay. So Natalie writes, "I'm writing to you with a question that's been niggling at me for a while. I've noticed that upon opening a new bottle of whiskey, The flavour is often more, quote unquote, closed off than it eventually becomes. It's harder to access the nuance of the dram Mm. and it can often taste over-oaked or cardboardy in a way that dissipates as it sits open for a few weeks. And in this instance, Natalie means in sitting open, you've... You've pulled off the capsule, you've uncorked it, you've poured it, you've put yeah. the capsule back on. She's not talking about leaving it with the literal cork off. Did she, just really quickly before you go on, yeah. because she used the yeah. term
0: over-oaked, mm-hmm. do we know if she's referring to American whiskey or not, or does it not specify?
1: No mention. Okay. No mention. Okay. okay. All right, continue. So, So then she concludes... Naturally, whisky reacts with oxygen once it's opened, which changes its flavour. But you fine folks have given me the good fortune to taste many whiskies straight from the cask, and they never seem closed off in the way that a fresh bottle often does. Have you experienced the same phenomenon? How do you account for it? And I, I think those two come together. Tim's email, Natalie's email, I think come together quite nicely here. So, Joshua, without further ado, have at it. And I will sit back and I will finish what is in my Manic Moore glass.
0: <sighs> well, what has happened? So, first off, no, I have never opened a bottle and left it open, uncorked. Uncorked. For, for more than my gosh, like I, I won't leave it uncorked for more than a minute. Like I just that's something I've never done before. Now, I think I know what's happening when when Tim's friend is doing that, especially if it's cask strength, right? If you leave that cork off, a oxygen is coming in and when whiskey oxidizes, it its characteristics, can change somewhat. But if you're leaving that cork off, and especially if it's cask strength, you have alcohol that's just pouring out in in the form of gas. So you're losing alcohol content. So your ABV is coming down overall. So I wonder if after a two to three week period of leaving a bottle uncorked and just on your shelf and you give it a pour and you have a whiskey you're happy with, If that's just a two to three week version of pouring a whiskey and putting a couple drops of water in it, um, it it almost seems as if you're accomplishing the same things with the exception of the oxidation. Okay. Why did you say it like that?
1: Because I was thinking understand. about my next, because oh, okay. I was thinking of my next dram, and I wasn't really listening to you, and then you <laughs> came to a stopping point, and I suddenly got deep in the headlights. I was like, "Oh shit!" Was he waiting on me responding here? Well, and so I just gave you a, a rather generic, hollow, anodyne. Hmm. Do tell me more, but I didn't want to say "tell me more" if you had nothing left to tell me. So, you you caught me with my hand in the cookie jar. But let me say this, now that I have your attention.
0: Uh, uh, okay.
1: As you're talking yeah. about this type of, of opening, the, the metaphorical opening of a whiskey, the, the flavors, the aromas, I, it, it inspired me. This is me trying to dig myself out of my whole of my own creating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You inspired me, Joshua, just now. If listeners could see your face right now, they would know that I'm successfully digging myself out of this hole. <laughs> one, of, one of the interesting ones for me that we, that we bottled recently was our balconies. You, you just mentioned balconies a moment ago. Mm-hmm. Those casks baking in that Texas sun and Texas heat can be so big and so big bold, mm-hmm. that there have been moments in opening up a Balcones that I've thought, oof, this needs a moment, right? This needs a little bit of time to just kind of relax its shoulders. And you and I had the two casks that we brought together mm-hmm. for our, mm-hmm. our Balcones release. Mm-hmm. And and then we got the bottles and we tasted it and we said, okay, we, we like what that's doing. We, we like what it's doing a lot. Mm-hmm. But it's not quite how we remember the the samples coming together when we combine the casks. and at that at that moment, oftentimes we're only drawing from our memory mm. right yeah and And then looking across my desk while you were speaking and and really contemplating how I was going to follow the manic more. I I saw that, and I'll I'll show it to you right here. That this is my balcony's bottle. That's that's okay. what I've got left not in my balcony's bottle. Not a lot. Right? Not not a lot. And so that has been sitting mostly empty for quite a while now. Mm-hmm. And all this talk of oxidation and high alcohol and the loss of vapor really really inspired me to pour this dram. Okay. And in putting my nose in it, it's not at all how I remember it when we first bottled it. It's, it's got a, and Balancer might write in again after I say this, it's got a softness going on that I'm really drawn to. And it really feels relaxed in the glass.
0: It's really interesting you say that because, and, and what I'm about to say, I think proves why we cannot trust our own memories. Now, because I've got my Balcones bottle over over here, and I'm about halfway through with it. But when we first received our bottles, and, and this will start to segue into Natalie's question, okay? Mm-hmm. When we first received our bottles and I opened up our Balcones, It was tight, it was sharp, it was... It just didn't seem like what we had done when we made our Balcones pick. right? We selected those two casks, we married them together, and we had this particular product, and I had it in my head, this is what we fell in love with. Then I opened our bottle, and it was very different from our memory. I went back to our original sample and found out that it was definitely different from what we had done. However, now that I'm about halfway through the bottle, the whiskey is much closer to what we had done. And so it makes me wonder, getting now to Natalie's question, when you receive a new bottle, is there bottle shock going on, right? Think, think about mm-hmm. how we received those... Balcones cast samples. Like Natalie had said, when she tastes whiskey from the cask at a warehouse, it's wonderful. When she receives the bottle, it's tight. It's closed off. She's got to let it breathe. Something's happening there. So what's what's happening between cask and bottle showing up on your doorstep? Right? You're, you're marrying, you're you're putting that liquid into a tank, sometimes marrying it with other casks. You're going mm-hmm. through the bottling process. You're boxing it up. You're sticking it on a boat or putting it on a plane, dealing with different barometric pressures and, and, and all this stuff. And and also, there is a bit of oxidation going on in the cask itself. You put the liquid into the bottle. Now has far less oxygen interacting with it, it just makes me think that there, there's a bunch of elements that happen once you dump that cask to the bottle showing up on your door that that it makes sense that that whiskey would, would arrive a bit tight, a bit closed off.
1: Yeah, bottle shock is an interesting one because it's not really spoken about in the industry, but sometimes over a few drams, we might start to talk about the surprise that mm. you get mm-hmm. from from first receiving that bottle that you're all excited about, that you selected from a cask sample, that you then say, this, this isn't quite it. And I, w- I would say this, there hasn't been, for me, a, a single cast nation example of this, quite in the same way that that I think of some very high proof bourbons when those are first open you get a real sense of tightness mm. that they that they really need to settle down and so I I don't know if there's something about American oak or or even new charred oak that, that can lead to this I don't know and I you know Natalie doesn't give examples and often times it's hard to read the examples out on a podcast um, but there, there's no examples we we don't even know is it scotch is it Irish is it American mm-hmm. is it other um, and so I, I would say I don't tend to find it in in scotch as m- or even hear about it in scotch as much as I've A, experienced it, and B, heard about it with some, as I like to say, American bourbons. (laughs) Well, think think about
0: bourbon, that that new charred oak. You can't get away from it. And bourbon gets wonderful at two years of age. There's absolutely fantastic bourbons at two, three, four, five, six years of age. And once you start reaching 12 years plus then you're doing a little dance. There's a chance that you could get over-oaked. You could get an astringency to it. And if you're at high octane, think about the environment that that whiskey is in when it's maturing. Think about Heaven Hills warehouses that go 12 floors high, right, that can produce some really astringent whiskey, I can understand why they want to do that right you mix a little bit of that in with some whiskey maturing on the bottom floor and it's adding in all these layers of flavor right some great things can happen but I can kind of see why a bourbon might be a bit tight a bit closed off maybe a bit dry or astringent and I would tie that to the new charred oak cask here's a very good example the orphan, uh, orphan Barrel series. They pre- mm-hmm. They've released some wonderful whiskies. most of them in the low to mid 40s at 20 some odd years of age. And my guess is they've released it at that ABV. They had to bring it down to fight the astringency that you get from that, from that aging. And the whiskey was made better because of it, in my opinion. So I think bourbon has a propensity to, to run into that scenario.
1: Yeah, no, I I think we both see that similarly. My question to you is: Yeah, having now heard of the the cork off technique, would you see yourself employing that?
0: No, I no, I wouldn't. Be for a couple of reasons. Uh, first off. <laughs> A, you don't know how quickly that that whiskey is evaporating and negative things can happen to it pretty quickly if you're not monitoring it. It's, it's just like adding ice to your whiskey. If, if you just have a, a cheap whiskey, you want to put an ice cube in there and just have a day, that, that, that's fantastic. But you cannot control the rate at which that ice... Uh, melts and dilutes the whiskey, and then you just end up with sort of whiskey-flavored cold water. No one likes that. So, if you leave the cork off, you run the chance of it losing so much alcohol that the whiskey be- whiskey becomes flat. Kind of like when a whiskey becomes flat, you know, in a bottle when you just leave a heel or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. And then, and then the other thing is, fruit flies are are drawn to the sweetness of the of the alcohol and i mean how many times have we sat around drinking whiskey and you say oh shit fruit fly just (laughs) fell in
1: yeah yeah i go from no fruit flies in my entire house to three fruit flies in my whiskey that i'm drinking in that moment (laughs) like were you hiding behind the pillows like what's (laughs) happening here so yeah, there's there's the you know you might want to get a bit of cheesecloth and and put it over the top if you're going to play around with that type of experiment. But, and this is what I was going to say earlier is
0: when I mentioned what I think's happening when his friend removes the cork for two or three weeks and then pours the whiskey is that two to three week waiting period is almost doing what adding a couple drops of water to whiskey does. The only mm-hmm. difference is when you leave that cork off, you're also accelerating the overall oxidation of that whiskey, too. Yeah. And that's another yeah. thing you can't control. At least when you, if you work with water, you can control that drop by drop by drop. And that's, that's a much more preferred method for me.
1: And that's certainly something I'd... You know, if I was Tim and this was my friend, I would certainly want to, you know, <laughs> clearly at this time, get together in a socially distanced mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. But but play around with water in that way. I would love to see if this friend's palate reacts to the addition of water and maybe even a fair few drops of water the same way their palate responds to leaving the cork off for you know, X number of, of days or weeks. Uh, I would love to see if their palate would get to the same place. And then it gives them a, a certain immediacy there hmm. where you can open your bottle. You can add the water. You can then cork it, put it safely back on the shelf, preserve that alcohol, and know, ballpark, how many drops to add yeah. the next time. Yep, yep, yep. Well, best of luck with that one, Tim. That's a, Those are fun back and forth, though. I, I love... I love having those with people.
0: Yeah, same, same. Uh, So let's see. Oh, you know what? I've got one from the good Dr. Matt Bishop. Hmm. So Dr. Matt, regular listeners would know, is a Scotsman uh, writing in from Edinburgh. Quick, Quick question for you, Jason. What's the better city, Glasgow or Edinburgh? Glasgow. There you go. I hope you guys don't fight next time you see one another.
1: I, I think Dr. Matt probably knows. <laughs> <laughs> if memory serves, he commutes into Edinburgh. Ah,
0: maybe that's it.
1: Maybe that's But it. I don't think he comes from Glasgow, but if he's getting his sense, he'll be closer to Glasgow than Edinburgh. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so the the
0: subject says post bag episode question on
1: genetics. Okay, okay. If I could tell you very quickly, Mm. the first day Tamara and I met, she was on her way to genetics class, Mm. and I was on my way to my history of ethics class. This was at the University of Puget Sound. Yeah. And I said to her, Oh, I loved my genetics study. And she said, Oh, I hate genetics. Mm. (laughs) And one of us is not a PhD in science. And one of us is. (laughs) And so anytime genetics comes up, I always think back to the first day I met my wife. Hmm, There you go.
0: Well, bask in that memory as I read you this email. So Dr. Matt says, Hi, J, 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 and New J. And then parenthetical comment here. He says, I'm assuming the newbie will have to be renamed.
1: And I think we're just going to call them New J. New J. I think this is now done. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Dr. Matt here, still smiling after having my email read out on the podcast before Christmas. And now and now, writing my question for the mailbag episode that's coming in February. Putting myself under pressure to write something worthy of broadcast. I
1: don't think he has to put himself under that much pressure. It's just Jason and Joshua. No. Some might say. No. no it's just no, Joshua no, and Jason. No, he's got to get it right. Because
0: if he fucks it up, that's it. So here he goes. He says... Having a PhD in genetics foie, foie, foie. Hey. <laughs> having a PhD in genetics and over thirty years of scientific meddling in the subject, my ears always twitch when I hear Jason regularly refer to the quote
1: <laughs> DNA of a distillery end quote. Oh boy. I do much better when people say, Joshua said this thing, or Joshua did this thing. (laughs) Jason? You're you're under the microscope. Oh boy, I see what you did there. Carry on.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you did. DNA is, as we all know, the language for the blueprint of life in our own unique genome, the DNA sequence is translated into a set of instructions that define our individuality. Indeed, I remember it well. Your cherubic qualities, Joshua. Your wizardic qualities, Jason. <laughs> so then, what is the, quote, DNA of a distillery? By definition, it should be the set of instructions that were used to build the stills, the shape of the line arm, or the length of the condensers, but it must also be the instructions for the barley mashing, the yeast fermentation, the temperatures, pressures, and varieties, not to mention the spirit cuts and cask selection. These things can all be controlled, measured, and written down precisely in the distillery instruction manual, the distillery genome. Mm -hmm. Still following Mm -hmm. the analysis? I like it a lot, too.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's funny. I was about to say, I'm really digging this analogy. <laughs> and that's the question they asked. Okay, yes, yes. yes, yes, yes to Answer yes, your, yes, your question, Dr. Much. Matt. Good, says, says Dr. Matt. <laughs> oh, no. I feel like I've <laughs> fallen into a trap here. I should have said no. I would like to revisit my answer, Joshua.
0: <laughs> it's a
1: trap. Uh, <laughs> then here comes
0: the hypothesis. Okay. Can we clone a distillery from the instruction manual? The Japanese tried to produce, quote, Japanese scotch whiskey, a twin, but not an identical twin. So that means there is something else at work here, more than just the instructions, something magical, something spiritual. For those of us on the atheist side of the fence, we call this natural variation, thanks to Charles Darwin. And it is mm-hmm. that, it is this that defines the subtleties of our world. Now you've managed to read this far. Thank you. I'm asking you for your thoughts. Which of the following lists would you pick as having the biggest effect as the form of natural variation in whiskey production that would give the uniqueness that Jason describes as the DNA of the distillery?
1: So now, now this. I, I cringe every time I ma- he mentions my name here. <laughs> oh no, no, I've gone and done it. Uh, okay, does one of these begin with T? Uh, kinda, maybe.
0: Okay. You, you, yeah. It's a multiple choice, right? So you've got five, okay. five options. Okay. Option one: the distillery manager, hands-on producer of the spirit. Option mm-hmm. two. The Master Blender slash Cask Manager. That's Mm. an an interesting pairing there. Um, Yeah,
1: Cask Manager.
0: Yeah, I I would separate those two. I think the the Master Blender might dictate what the Cask Manager does or vice versa, I'm not sure. But I can see the connection, so I'll let it slide here.
1: Uh, We certainly do like asking some of our guests about wood management and overhauling wood management at their, their distilleries. And so mm. I, I I like I like your point where the master blender is likely communicating with the person in charge of casks, yeah. how to how to set them up. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Yeah, good. Uh, number three, the
0: geographical location of the distillery. And here we are with your T-word, mm-hmm. terroir. Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. we all know is French for terror.
1: And Not the, terrier. God loves a terrier. Yes, he does. God loves
0: a terrier. Five points oh, like to it. Gryffindor if uh, if you know where that came from. Mel Brooks. No. Oh.
1: Best in Show. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, Christopher Guest, big fan. Never seen that particular one.
0: I'm sorry. What you've never seen Best in Show?
1: It's just one of those. You know, sometimes your stars just don't align. That's been the case for me with that movie. My stars just have not aligned.
0: I, uh, I'm slackjawed. I'm slackjawed, Jason. You have an assignment this week, and you and Tamara need to watch Best in Show together, and you need to watch it at least five
1: times. <laughs> well, given that you've spent ten years. Not taking any of my recommendations. I'll get right on that. I took all of them. I def- eventually took all of them. <laughs> Though, I tell Dear, it- dear listener, <laughs> don't get upset when mommy and daddy fight. They still love you. This isn't about any of you. Oh, I can't believe it. It's just you. been a long day. <sighs> mommy and daddy are tired. And sometimes they just use sharp words when they talk to I- each other. I
0: can't believe you had me rewatch Requiem for
1: a Dream. It was so difficult, so painful. Well, I didn't have you re-watch it. I asked you if you'd seen it, and you said no. And I said, oh, that's one you have to see. Like, I would never watch it twice. I saw it once, and that was more than enough. But I saw it once, and I promptly put it
0: out of my <laughs> head because of it, was a night, it wasn't a bad movie. It was just a night... It was like watching a nightmare.
1: Oh, it is like watching a nightmare. Yes, yes, I... I haven't taken it out for air still haunts me to this day and it's a long time since I last saw that movie or first saw that movie anyway anyway back to <laughs> oh, terrier oh yeah back back, back to terrier. terrier and whiskey
0: god loves a terrier charles darwin loves a terrier so number 4 is the marketing manager and oh yeah
1: uh-huh. <laughs> and number uh-huh. and number five, and this, paging Garden <laughs> Bruce. Paging Garden Bruce. <laughs>
0: number five, and, and this may be the clincher here. This, this actually may be the most important one. I think you and I can likely agree on that. Uh, is it independent bottlers? <laughs> <laughs> Secretly, that is the most important. <laughs> number five is the distillery
1: cat. Ah. It's important. Ah. Do you own that book that's about distillery cats? I don't know
0: if I knew there was a book about distillery cats.
1: Oh, ah, yeah, and it's funny there's no photographs in it. It's just hand drawings of distillery cats. That sounds amazing. <laughs> God, cat people. Anyway, no disrespecting so, cat people and our listeners. <laughs> so Dr. Matt closes off the email saying? Yes, this is a wonderful email. This is absolutely terrific. And let me just say this before Dr. Matt closes this out. When we talked earlier in this episode about meeting up with friends, pouring drams, chatting away, catching up, these types of hypotheses are well discussed mm. over a dram or three. Mm-hmm. This is this is my kind of question. I'm really digging this, even if I'm really getting lambasted through this.
0: Well, let me finish. Let me finish with Dr. Matt's closing statement, and then I'm going to I'm going to throw you a bone, Jason. I'm going to come to your de- <laughs> I'm going to come to your defense. So he just he just says very simply, "I look forward to your thoughts. Kind wishes for 2021, Dr.
1: Matt." Mm-hmm. I'm going to come. And to you, Dr. Matt. And stay safe out there. Yes,
0: stay safe. You use your you, you defended your PhD. Defend your immune system. Stay COVID-free, my friend. So I'm going to defend your use of quote DNA of a distillery, because I use this all the time myself. And I yeah. often think of Michael Jackson when he says uh, a distillery character, right? A dis- yeah, house style. House style, that's it. That, that's what he says. That's right. He says house style. Someone else says distillery character. But my point is, you think yeah. you think about the Balvenie. They talk about them being the honeyed whiskey. Absolutely. That yep. is their house style. Kilhoman has a the house Winnie style. The Winnie the Pooh whiskey. The honey, honey. Uh, yeah, so so that's that's what you mean when you say the DNA of a distillery, right? A, a house style.
1: Correct. Yes. For for me, it's the new make spirit, how it runs, texture, flavor profile, and then when you taste that new make spirit that has been matured in X, Y, and Z casks. Mm-hmm. Do you still recognize the distillery at the heart of that whiskey? Does the does the DNA come through maturation in the new make spirit? Can you identify a distillery from its actual new make? Probably not. I'm terrible, terrible, and we, you and I have both said this on the podcast many, 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 many times. We're both terrible blind tasters. Well,
0: okay. Let's, however, yeah. Okay, go ahead. However,
1: yeah. When we are visiting Glen Murray, and we taste that new make spirit, that's that's what I then look for in all other bottlings, whether it's fill your own Glen Murray or it's the the Madeira curiosity release, you're still finding Glenn Murray, that new make spirit, that bright pear note, those beautiful fresh fruit notes still carry through. I would argue that you can find a pear-like quality. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. I you and I have had this very conversation at Glen Murray <laughs> where we have said there's no mistaking that particular yeah. version of fruit. And and and, and yeah. I take the point you're making. Yeah, New Make tends to be fruity or it tends to be floral or it tends to be smoky, right? It's big and it's bold and it's brash and it's immediate, mm. right? Mm-hmm. But when you also know the releases that come from said distillery, you can say, Oh, I remember how this fruit mm. manifests itself. I remember how this floral component manifests itself. So so yes, those those broad qualities are in multiple new makes, but there's something about the Glenn okay. Murray one yeah. that just mm, it's Glenn Murray. Yeah, for me, it's it's Springbank. I can
0: taste Springbank in their new make. There's no escaping mm-hmm. it. You taste it, you say, this mm-hmm. has got to be Springbank. But I would mm-hmm. say there's a lot of distilleries that make fantastic new makes that I wouldn't necessarily connect to the final product. However, I would taste various final products from a distillery and connect them to one another, but I can't always connect it back to the new make.
1: If you wanted to take an example, that the new make seems to come from a different distillery than the the, the retail offerings. Oh, I want.
0: I hope you're going to say who I think you're going to say. Go ahead.
1: Do you remember when we were at Craggimore? Uh huh. <laughs> and you expect the Cragginmore new make spirit mm-hmm. to be this honeycomb center, sweet mm-hmm. new make spirit. And it's not. At all. It's it's much heavier. Um, I, I, Is it dank? Is it earthy? Yes. Is it meaty? Yes,
0: yes, and yes. Right? So it's all
1: those things. Which then makes me think of the new make spirit that they run uh, in wick at old Pultley, right where their new make spirit is so meaty the 12 year old doesn't look like that the 21 year old doesn't look like that and it's the 17 year old that gives a nod to the new make spirit Interesting. And i had that exact conversation with malcolm Waring. Hmm. that f- you know out of those three the 12 the 17 the 21 The 17 seemed like it had a connection to their new make spirit, and he agreed that to his mind and palate, that was also the case. So
0: interesting because, and, and of course, the 17 is unfortunately no longer available, but the 17 was always my favorite. I remember when the 21 year old. Uh, what's-his-face, uh, Jim Murray called it the you know the best whiskey of the year, whatever year that was, 2011, 2010. And, and I would say, it's a good whiskey. The 17 is where it's at. Though. That was exactly. the old Pultney, and, Exactly. And you're connecting it back to the new make. I think that's kind of remarkable. I think that's cool. Huh. Okay, so so l- let's get back so to Dr. Matt's yeah, question. Yeah, back to Dr. Matt's question here. So... So which of these five options, and I'll read them back to you, Mm -hmm. do you think, you know what? I will reread his question. Which one of the following list would you pick as having the biggest effect as a form of, quote, natural variation in whiskey production that would give the uniqueness that Jason describes as the DNA of the distillery? And Now back to your options. The distillery yep. manager, yep. who has who's the hands-on producer of the spirit, the master blender or or cask manager. That's option two. Terroir, basically French terror, uh, That's your option three. The marketing manager, which that's an interesting point. I, there's there's I can see why people might get upset at that, but that's really interesting uh, marketing being an aspect of it that's smart i think and then and then five finally the distillery cat <laughs> so,
1: so assuming that we can't answer five because it's the obvious and correct answer out of out of the four lesser components under distillery cat <laughs> which do we think and i'm i'm gonna Surprise myself as, mm-hmm. as much as I'm potentially going to surprise regular listeners. And I'm going to pick the T word because as much as I think the people are hugely important, mm-hmm. we know that you could take the dimensions of the stills, the height of the neck, the angle of the line arm. We know that we could take the fermentation times. We know that we could take the cuts and we know that we could mature in a similar type of wood. And even if across Scotland, the variations are are much smaller, you and I know that, and, and Dr Matt alludes to it in his own question here, you know that you can take all of that knowledge to Japan or Israel or India, mm-hmm. or Australia, and you will simply get a different version of this product. There's, yeah. there's a necessity to that variance that is unmistakable and simply cannot be denied. Now, the bigger question and one that I'm not going to answer, is can you taste terroir when you are among those smaller variances? And and clearly right now, and he, he actually, his distillery just got a, an icon uh, attached to it, Waterford, right? Mark Rene mm-hmm. firmly believes that terroir Is There Mm -hmm. he firmly believes terroir exists through the entire process from from field to bottle and and even if you go up a hill and grow barley on a different farm you're going to get something different out of the process right and again that's one of those conversations that you get to sit over a few drams Mm -hmm. and wax lyrical with your friends. But the example that comes to my mind and and why I I started naming some of the countries that I did is how many distilleries are we involved with right now who are all Dr. Jim Swan distilleries, right? Mm -hmm. And you have that level of expertise setting them up to make the best spirit where they are. Now, there's clearly philosophies that Dr. Jim Swan carried with him. Mm-hmm. There was clearly ways to ferment. There was clearly ways to take cuts. There were clearly ways to mature that Milk and Honey, Pendarin, Uh Cavillan. Cavillan.
0: Well, and let's not forget, too, he also worked with Glenmorangie. He worked with Geary as right. well. He's worked with right. Americ in, in France. It's not just new distilleries that he's worked on. It's existing distilleries that are looking for ways to tweak their existing operations.
1: Right. And so if you, if you can take someone with similar philosophies and employ those in all these different countries and get whiskies that that clearly give nods to Scotch, but are still doing their own thing. The thing it makes me think of is that no whiskey producer wants to be a carbon copy of another whiskey producer. Everybody is searching out their point of difference. Mm-hmm. And so, and we just had this conversation with Jess the other day, right? Who is Scotland's northernmost distillery? Yeah. Who is Scotland's westernmost distillery? Who is Scotland's highest distillery, right? Everybody wants a point of difference. But I would still posit that even if you took the distillery blueprints and you built them to exact specifications in the same circumstance, no matter who you had in charge of that project you simply could never replicate a distillery style you could never replicate the dna
0: i will agree with you but i don't think that it's necessarily here's the thing twin there is no such thing as identical twins right even even we as humans when we create Babies, and we have twins. Those babies that come out are going to have slight variations. Okay, so I, I I'm agreeing with you here.
1: Well, and, and let me yeah, and that's why I'm saying like they're spatially and temporally like even if they shared the same DNA, they would be spatially temporally different, and that's the argument I'm making about distillery. Yes. So continue agreeing with me, but. But
0: I I don't buy into terroir as necessarily a significant factor in what a distillery's house style is, with two exceptions. Those exceptions being if peat is being used, because that's actual terroir, that's actual earth. Right? Isla whiskies taste like Isla Whiskies because they're using peat from Isla. Highland whiskies taste like peated peated highland whiskies taste like peated highland whiskies because of the peat that's being used from the highlands. You have different environments, you've got different vegetation going on that's going to affect the flavor. And my, the example is the whiskey that I just poured. Uh, I poured the Kalila 17-year-old unpeated style, bottled in 2015. And when I nose this whiskey, and when I taste this whiskey, I'm telling you, it tastes nothing like Kalila. This tastes closer to a Highland-style whiskey, almost like a Glenord. A lot of minerality to it, austere, bright. Um, would you say rich? <laughs> I'd say <laughs> I, I I would say there's a there's a rich maltiness to it. And so, what was being removed in the overall process? The peat, the actual terroir, and and so I think that is going to affect the overall flavor that that distillery character more than where the barley came from or necessarily the type. Yeast can surely affect flavors in, in, a, bigger, in sure. a big way, uh, but the peat is going to be huge. So you have got a distillery, Cholila, that's producing two very different styles of whiskey using the same stills, the same fermentation, the same, same cuts, the whole thing. The only difference is the peat. Right, so
1: are they taking the cuts at the same place?
0: uh, My understanding is nothing is different.
1: Hmm, I do remember having the conversation with Justina at the distillery. Maybe
0: that's, you know, I would love it if you could follow up with Justina. Maybe we can get her on the podcast. Yeah, that'd be awesome about that. That's a really good idea. So, so my point, my point is, if you take the peat out of the equation. Colila is producing a Highland-style whiskey on Isla. Pretty damn close. It's not an identical twin, but it's pretty damn close. The other element that I think can play a, a large effect on flavor, maybe not to the effect of peat, but surely a, a, a con- considerable compared to every other factor if we're keeping the still sizes the same and everything the same, you know, uh, is where the warehouse is located and where within the warehouse those casks are located. You, If you took the Kalila distillery, stuck it in Kentucky, your whiskey is going to taste different because of the humidity and also where those casks lie within the warehouse. So in that sense... Right, your surroundings, where where you're located, does affect the final product, but it's not necessarily a production thing. It's 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 a change in humidity and pressures. <sighs> and so now we we have peat, which I think can be a considerable factor to what is your house style, and then you've got where those casks are maturing and how they're maturing, uh, which can affect it. But otherwise. If there is no peat and the atmospheric pressure and the humidity and everything is the same, you're just kind of moving a little bit, I think you can get pretty damn close. So I, I, I don't know, man. I, I don't buy too much into the
1: terroir. Even though you buy into the terroir. What's your famous Paul John conversation, right? You, you're in the Cadenes Warehouse. Yeah. You get a sample of Paul John. Yeah. And you say, I don't know what it is, but I know it's not scotch. Exactly. How's that, how's that not terroir? okay okay
0: let's pump the brakes right slow your roll okay here's the thing when i tasted that
1: i Uh thought
0: i thought to myself self self this is a malt whiskey there's no doubt about it but you're right jason this is not a Scotch whiskey, and I said that this is not Scotch, and they said you're 100 percent correct. But what does Goa have that Scotland doesn't have? <laughs> how, how long is your list? <laughs> Heat and humidity. Heat and humidity. And that uh, And that <laughs> was one of the two exceptions that I mentioned. Here's my issue.
1: Here's my issue. If you and hold on, just just pause. Really, just pause uh, mm-hmm, really quickly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And I want to stick with this this idea that you could take a distillery, build it in one place, re-glue mm-hmm. it in another place, and have a similar tasting mm-hmm. style. Mm-hmm. If you subtract the peat out of Kalila, that distillery is now in the Highlands.
1: Yeah. Or yeah, co- yeah.
0: or could be. But when it comes to the humidity factor and the heat factor, you can't really subtract that. So I would almost say that the location where the casks are being matured is playing a bigger part overall in its distinction between is this a Scottish single malt or
1: is this a single malt produced elsewhere? I don't want to belabor the point, but I just don't think you could take the bones of Lagavulin, take that still style, which is striking, and keep all your processes the same Mm -hmm. and move that distillery over to Kilholman and still have the same spirit. I guess,
0: I guess we need to have an understanding, and we're kind of veering off the path. Right? We, we've taken the one option, and now we're just tearing it apart. But, but let's, let's stay on this just, just for another minute here, okay? I'm not suggesting that it's going to be identical. I don't think you'll ever get identical. I think a distillery has a difficult time producing identical spirit in a given week. For a multitude of reasons, that's where the blending processes come into play and in right?
1: So, so this is the question we're being asked. Is if you could take the DNA, could you essentially clone a distillery? And so your answer is no. My answer is no. And my answer is no. Yeah. Right? And but, I'm saying But then
0: you're saying that you think it's the most important part.
1: The terroir yeah. is one of I think they're all important. Right. I think everything Dr. Matt has listed there oh, okay. is yeah, important. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, We're definitely. trying to say what's the most the important most. of and these. You, but they're all okay. important. And so you feel it is the terroir. I think necessarily it's the terroir because I don't think you can relocate anything and have it be replicated. And I think you just said it quite nicely there. They have a hard enough time replicating when they're in the same place mm. with the same stills and the same barley. And the same yeast day in and day out, and, and we're back to yeah. temperature again. How yeah. does temperature affect your fermentation? What qualities do you find in your fermentation based on fluctuations in temperature? How many distilleries do we visit where we go into the the ton uh, the into the room of the washbacks? Right, the what they call that room? God, I haven't been out my house in so long. <laughs> the room so, with the washbacks. Yeah, it's the washback room. <laughs> It's not the washroom. I've been going into very different places. It's the water closet. Although I've still been, I've still been <laughs> dipping my cup in and drinking it though. Like I think I'm still doing it right. <laughs> but how how many say you know oh on such and such a day we open the windows and on such and such a day we close the windows, uh, or you go down to those who have got a malting floor. Oh yeah, when it gets to this temperature we open those windows, and when it gets to another temperature we close those windows. Let's go right. It, yeah. Every day is difficult. Let's
0: go back to the example of Lagavulin. I remember the first time you and I were at Lagavulin together. This was 2011. We were with uh, Mike and Meg Andrews, and mm-hmm. we went into the distillery, and there was a chalkboard. or um, I don't know if it was a blackboard or a whiteboard, but it was a board. And on the blackboard was a list of malt intake Mm -hmm. And next to each intake listed the PPM, the phenolic parts per million on the barley on any given day. And it ranged from 27 PPM up to around 78 PPM. The average is, as we all know, is somewhere around 37 to 42, I think for, for Lagavulin. But this is my point. If, each and every time they're dealing with a different PPM level. So yes, so I'm just really stressing my point. I just wanted to use that story to do so. Also, this, well, this has been
1: the mailbag episode, <laughs> and, and I've enjoyed the mailbag uh, episode. So, <laughs> uh, any other questions? I, hey, listen, li- Dr. Matt, that's absolutely brilliant question. Absolutely brilliant. Oh, Joshua's interrupting me to say thanks instead. Well, I haven't given my answer. You gave your answer To to what?
0: He wanted to know what one of the five (laughs) You gave your answer I decided to fight you on that And I'm going to give my answer
1: (laughs) It's your time editing Down here it's our time It's our time down here
0: That's all over the second we ride up Troy's bucket
1: You do whatever (laughs) needs to happen here Uh, You do you
0: I think that it's the uh, master blender and cask manager.
1: Well, yeah, we know the master blender is hugely important. We know that wood policy is hugely important.
0: It, I'll, I'll use the example of Highland Park. When you taste Highland Park bottled by Highland Park, it's unmistakable. When you taste Highland Park from an independent bottler, it's quite often very different from what you've experienced from their, their 12 to now, now gone 15 and 18, 21 and 25 and so forth is because they have a very specific blending style that just screams Highland
1: Park. It's not saying that, and yeah. And maturation style as well. And ma- no, they, none of the yeah. peated Highland Park is matured on Orkney. Yeah. And, and this
0: isn't to say that independently bottled Highland Park is bad whiskey. We've, I'll say we've bottled some Orkney, and I'll leave it at that. But I would say that if I find a Highland Park or an Orkney bottled by an independent bottler, I know I'm going to get, going to get something that isn't like the Highland Park that I know, and I will tip my hat to the master blender for that. And that master blender's understanding of how casks are managed and where they're stored and the different they have got a couple different peating levels, right? Like this is all the things that the master blender needs to know and needs to 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 work with. So, I think that that is the most important. I don't think that answers the question.
1: Really? Look at his question again. To the uniqueness of the whiskey. To the <laughs> uniqueness of the whiskey. Yeah. I, now, I don't think it's that important. Like, I think it's hugely important, obviously. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think it's... Listen, they're all important. We know this. We're just arguing degrees now, so... <laughs> I'm going to let it lie. <laughs> I'm right, going to be the bigger right, man here. All
0: right, all right. Whew, thought I thought it was going to come to fisticuffs for a second there when you got it wrong and I had to, I had
1: to correct you. Isn't it pretty to think so? Well, I like that. It's Cormac McCarthy. Oh, right.
0: I I saw him live.
1: Nice one. Mm -hmm.
0: He came to Madison, Connecticut. I think his books are too wordy, but they're a bit wordy. Um, Anyway, anyway, yeah, anyway. What do? What else do we have, Jason?
1: Well, I tell you, you just pulled a question out of Scotland, and I'm. Going to present you with a question from the Philippines. Oh my gosh, we are—we're just traveling around the globe here, Jason. It's lovely. I feel like I'm finally getting out of my office and out of my house. This is wonderful.
0: Uh, before you, before you read the question, I've got to tell you. Speaking of the the Philippines, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, a dear listener, Philippe Panavong, who's Filipino, and. On Christmas Day as I was eating our traditional Jewish dinner of, of Chinese food, I could not get out of my head. Philippe Penavong Philippe Penavong Philippe Navong pa <laughs> anyway,
1: please read. He is so generous to us, <laughs> so very kind. So we have this is Jigs Alonzo. Which is such a wonderful name. Jigs Alonzo. Speaking of wonderful names, Jigs opens his email. I
0: think the Jigs is
1: up on on this. Hi, Jason and Joshua. (laughs) My name is Jigs and I'm a long time listener of your podcast from the Philippines. Mm. And we love having you listen in, Jigs. Thank you. We really do. We really do. I've just finished listening to your latest episode with David Broom, and I wanted to take you up on your invitation to send over questions for your mailbag episode. Here are some of the burning questions I've wanted to ask both of you.
0: If it burns for too long, Jigs, there's are (laughs) creams that you can get to to calm that down a little bit.
1: Rub whiskey on it. (laughs) Number one. I've been recently feeling like I'm being pulled in two directions when it comes to what whiskies I want to buy mm-hmm. IBs and OBs. What are the advantages and disadvantages of independent bottlings compared to original bottlings? And what kinds of consumers do you think each would be more suitable for? Number two. What are some of the biggest misconceptions that whiskey enthusiasts have about independent bottlings? Mm-hmm. And finally, number three, how have your personal preferences involving different kinds slash flavours of whiskey changed throughout the years, especially as you continued to be exposed to more whiskies through your work? Mm. What categories or flavour profiles do you currently find yourselves gravitating towards? I would deeply appreciate it if you'd answer any or number of these questions. But I'm sure I'll thoroughly enjoy the episode anyway, even if you didn't. Well, please, do not fret, Jigs. We are excited to answer one Two, three, or all
0: of your questions. Firstly, those are three great questions. Secondly, though, I feel as if we received a second email from Jigs with another question. We did. We did. Could you read that one? Because, I mean, that is a lot of questions. I don't know if we can get to all of them. So I want I want to pick and choose here, Jason. Pick and choose.
1: <laughs> Look at you giving yourself options. <laughs> I I think what you were really doing is, given that his first email opens with, hi, Jason and Joshua, Mm -hmm. you wanted to give equal airtime to the email that opens, hi again, Joshua and Jason. I think that was up your sleeve the entire time.
0: Jigs must have been fucking pissed drunk when he wrote the first email, because he he wrote (laughs) your name first and mine second. We all know that mine goes first. It doesn't make you say things you don't mean. It just lets the truth out, <laughs> Oh, gosh. Just wait till I drink more whiskey. Continue on.
1: Okay. <laughs> the truth will be flowing. <laughs> uh, so in the second email, Jigs writes, I hope both of you are well. I'm sending over another email in the hopes that I may still sneak in another question that I can't seem to answer through research. Come to the right place, Jigs. We certainly do not answer questions through research, so we will do our very best. None of our answers have been researched. Continue. <laughs> Jiggs writes, what are the different or most common ways that independent bottlers acquire their whiskies? Initially, I thought that it was either through distilleries themselves that allocate a small selection of casks that independent bottlers can choose from or through brokers who acquired casks from distilleries in a similar manner. Mm. This would imply that independent bottlers actually only have limited choices, since they only get to choose from casks that distilleries deem unusable for their purposes. Mm. However, I like that he says for their purposes, because there are some people who think... It's It's just the dregs dregs that go out the door, but unusable for their purposes. However, as I recently listened to your podcast episode with Cara Lang, she mentioned that it was a misconception for consumers to think that independent bottlers are only able to access the dregs (laughs) that distilleries do not need. I now find myself lost, confused, and sincerely hopeful that both of you can shed some light on this process of acquisition all the best jigs wow. Welcome to the podcast, jigs. It's good to have your voice on here.
0: It really is and and I'm glad we read that that fourth one because I, I want to answer that one first and I think we want to get to his first question last So firstly, how great was Kara? Kara was was wonderful. wonderful. She yeah, was, was absolutely a great, great interview. Yeah, I yep, I, I, it. I went back and I like, listened to that episode, and I was it was so, just a joy having her on. Anyway, yeah, you know, the way in which independent bottlers get our whiskies is varied, actually, and I and I think that your initial assumption is somewhat close, somewhat close to one of the ways in which we get our casks. So the first thing that we need to understand is that distilleries, and and, and I'm staying within the world of Scotch whiskey distilleries, okay? Mm -hmm. We need to know that whiskey distilleries within Scotland, whether they're producing malt whiskey or grain whiskey, they are factories that are producing spirit to sell predominantly... To go into a blend, mm-hmm. used, that's fair, right? The Scotch whiskey industry used to be, and by used to be, you know, I would say even as recent as as 10, 15 years ago, ninety five percent blend driven, five percent single malt driven. Now it's closer to a ninety two eight split or a 90-10 split, something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I continue to hear it moving in that direction,
0: right? So when, when distilleries are producing spirit to go into a blend, we need to think like a blender. So let's put on our Diageo cap. If you're Diageo, who produces Johnny Walker, and let's use Johnny Walker Black as the example, you own 29-ish, somewhere around there, Scotch, <laughs> Scotch Whiskey distilleries, but you've got 39-ish. Whiskies within Johnny Walker Black. You know what the flavor profile of Johnny Black, you know what it should be. So you know what you need from your various own distilleries. However, these distilleries are also, they're producing so much whiskey that could fall outside of that general flavor profile. Okay? So if you're producing Johnny Black and you've got all of these whiskeys, let's say 80% of it, is whiskey that is usable for their blend. What do they do with the rest? They sell it on to brokers, master brokers, who then sell that on to smaller brokers, who then sell it on to independent modelers like us. Now, we're a small company. We're buying anywhere between one and 24 casks at a time. There are other independent bottlers that are buying 500, 1,000, 2,000 casks at a time, right? We're living in a different world than they are. So they may be buying from master brokers or buying from the brokers. So that's one way that whiskey can get to independent bottlers. However, there are other ways that independent bottlers can can get their spirit, and that is uh, by cask fill programs. Think of mm-hmm. say Gordon McPhail who deals with yeah. Glenn so Grant so well known for it. Exactly. Glenn Grant and their Linkwood and their Mortluck labels. You know, they they're Gordon McPhail are sending their cast to the distilleries to be filled. That's how they get their whiskey. Uh, think about our our seven year old Glenn Murray in a Fino cask. We didn't get that cask from Glenn Murray, but when we told them we bought it they said, wait, Fino? We've never filled into Fino. So Glenn yep. Murray sells off bulk spirit, likely to blenders who need to fill into their own wood because they have specific flavor profiles they look for. So, And again, now you're getting that spirit from uh, from those blenders where the whiskey doesn't fit that particular blend. And again, back to that previous comment of, we're not getting the dregs, we're getting whiskey that doesn't necessarily fit a flavor profile, be it a blend or be it that distillery single malt.
1: Well, and I I think you're leading in very nicely to the question that Jiggs asks about the advantages and disadvantages of IB compared to OB. Okay. And one of the things that, that we have said from the very beginning of this company is a distillery wants to produce a lineup, uh, a series of standard offerings that are consistently good. And, you know, if you go and buy distillery X's 10 year old, it's going to be the same. And I always say this in Glasgow or New York or Tokyo, mm-hmm. wherever you find yourself. And the goal of the independent bottler is to zig when the distillery zags or to zag when the distillery zigs. Mm -hmm. And I've always talked about our role as an independent bottler is to provide a peek behind the curtain Mm -hmm. to those who know a particular distillery. And it's not to come out and say, our independently bottled Aaron is is better than Aaron's Aaron. It's all Aaron's Aaron. You know, we've been very lucky to have a wonderful relationship with Aaron uh, to to acquire their casks. But when you and I present that distillery, Mm. it's Aaron first and foremost, Mm -hmm. and the casks that we have selected from Aaron. However, it's okay for us And and I would say it's imperative that we don't just bottle the same house style. Now, Mm. it comes back to Dr. Matt here with DNA, Mm. right? What do we talk about in our YouTube tastings or in this podcast or in-person tastings or in our Zoom tastings, right? We're still looking for the Aaron DNA or any distillery, right? the DNA to shine through in whatever it is we bottle. The standard offering clearly has the house style. That's how Michael Jackson got to understand the house style, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But, and we did this with an Orkney example, where if the distillery is known for sherry maturation, we brought out something in bourbon. Yeah, And so if you're a fan of, of an Orkney distillery we have something that might pull back the curtain for you yeah. and 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 I would I would say you know when we did go back to Glen Murray with that fino cask matured and they said we don't do fino we don't have any fino that was a perfect opportunity yes. to show Glen Murray and something that the distillery was not doing so you know I I've never, even as an independent bottler, I've never once championed independent bottling over distillery no, bottling or no, original no. bottling or official bottling. I've I've never once done that, and neither of you, and nor have the distilleries we have worked with championed their distillery offerings over independently bottled no, offerings. That's not how this works. Yeah, exactly. Because it's all their liquid, yeah, 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 right? Yeah, yep. I, I, and so the, the important aspect of this for me is you should really be exploring both OBs and IBs, mm. right? You know, find a distillery that you love and buy up the OBs and then go start exploring the IBs and then add some OBs from a decade or two decades ago, right? And mix up your ages with it. But really drill down on a distillery and see the ways in which OBs and IBs present their bottlings differently.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll just add two points to that. I, I think you and I, while we do try to focus as much as we can on zigging while others zag and zagging while others zig, it's also very important to us to show people why we fell in love with distillery A, B, or C. Mm-hmm. And so when mm-hmm. we started a, a relationship with the distillery, we, we let them know that, right? This is, you know, it was interesting, early early doors when we started with Aaron, and, and Aaron said, you know, we, we wanna be amongst your first bottlings. We wanna be the first you bottle. Our aim was, we wanna make sure people know who you are and understand your style. And while they appreciated that, they gave us the Pinot Noir cask, which kind of took it slightly outside the style. But, but my point is that's the type of relationship that we like to have with the distillery, where we say, "This is this is a partnership." We want to show people how why we fell in love with you, and 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 let's work together and try to show that through something that might be your house style on steroids or something a bit off the beaten path like that Pinot Noir cask. And then the other thing that I wanted to mention, and and it talks to your point before where where the last thing we want is someone to say, we like your version of this distillery's whiskey more than the other or vice versa. I'll never forget our very first Whiskey Jubilee and Dan Friedman he was with the Jewish Daily Forward at the time i poured him our ben riach 17 and his comment was so interesting he said you do ben Ryuk better than ben riach does ben <laughs> yeah. yeah and and i what i heard was him saying i like ben Ryuk, and he came to it because he wanted to taste ours too and he just found out that that particular one was better than the other ones he tasted before. It has nothing to do with us. We just picked the cask. They made the whiskey. I'm glad he liked it. That means he likes Ben Ria. That's awesome. We didn't do it. We just picked it.
1: Yeah. Yep. Which is interesting because I think when Jigs asks here, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that whiskey enthusiasts have about independent bottlings? <laughs> it's what you just said there. It's, you go to a warehouse. You roam around. You stumble over some casks. You taste things you like. You stick it in your bottle, and then you experience success, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's so much more than that. And and one of the things that I'm most proud of is getting to know the nation, and the nation getting to know us and by and by that I mean our palates. Yeah, yeah. And yep. and getting getting to a point now where. We can sell out bottles in minutes, but the nation trusts the selection that has been made mm. to fit the myriad palettes of the nation. And and that's something that we have now lived with for eight, nine years, nine years since that first Aaron <laughs> Pinot Noir came yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. Was it's important that people know our palettes and know where they are pallets live with ours uh, and dovetail with ours and so it's it's not just a case of going out and about you know the world getting world samples and saying yep i like that stick it in a bottle yeah i, I still worry about screwing up all the time i do too but i'm going i'm going to to
0: read something really quickly that i think speaks to something you and i have aimed to do from the very beginning. And these are these are from uh, Serge Valentin uh, on Whiskey Fun. He recently reviewed our 28-year-old Aberfeldy, which was for, uh, not for the U.S., for the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And is his just this opening line. And it just says, our friends in America always manage to bottle different, Whiskeys quote different whiskeys. <laughs> and that's not the first time he said something like that mm-hmm. and and every time I read it, I get goosebumps because this is you know Serge is someone whom I've respected since i I, I found this rabbit hole to go down yep and, Same. and when he acknowledges on more than one occasion that we are bottling stuff that is outside of pretty much w- what everybody else is doing. That says a lot because this he's he's now on his fifteen. He's over fifteen thousand whiskey reviews. This is a person who you know who, along with with uh, with Angus, now uh, has tasted thousands and thousands of whiskeys, and he's calling our selections out as something that's basically going to zig when others are zagging and i just i'm, hu- I'm absolutely humbled by that
1: yeah no, it's it's wonderful to hear that it's wonderful to to be recognized in that way and it's interesting because i only ever make the observation in the direction of the distilleries but it makes sense to make it in the direction of independent bottlers as well if you're a distillery and i keep saying this you want to be known for your lineup, for your range, mm. but as an independent bottler, you always you also want to be known for your selections mm-hmm. and how you make them and what goes into the bottle, and it's the point of difference. It's what Single Cast Nation doing, what Signatory doing, what Douglas Lang doing, What's, you know Single Malt of Scotland, what whiskey Douglas Lang. Goes on and on, right? Yeah. North Star, right? But but what's your own DNA? What's your exactly. own IB DNA? Exactly. And can you consistently present that to people who buy from you? And and this is why. And we've been asked. Uh, I've
0: I've given this answer multiple times to questions that have been asked in different ways. People say, you know, how do you pick your whiskeys? And and there have been variations of that question thrown at us. And my comment has always been: first and foremost, we do not have our consumers in mind when selecting a cask. We have our own palates in mind when selecting our cask, because that's we don't we don't have a distillery. We don't have a lineup that we can offer up. We have preferences that can be found in different distilleries, different makes, different styles of spirit. And all we can do is stay true to what our goal is, bottle spirit that we've fallen in love with, and then hope that people come to us. And if their palates align with ours, great. We've got a customer and hopefully they can tell a friend. And if they don't align with ours, well that's fine. Maybe they'll find another bottler that that aligns with their palate. You know, there's no skin off our backs, but we have to stay true to ourselves or else we don't have this consistent this consistency to offer
1: up. Yeah it's true and I agree with what you're saying there. I definitely pay attention to how we fit. With the nation and how the nation fits with us. And so I would never go in and select a cask where I would say, oh, the nation's going to love this. Right. Even if I don't. Right. That would, that would make me very, very nervous. But there are moments when in tasting a whiskey, I think, oh, the nation's going to love this. This is going to fit the nation beautifully. And 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 I love it so much that I'm excited that it's going to work with but, the nation. But,
0: but but think about before we had an actual uh, you know consumer base. The answer the answer was still the same. I love this. The fact that we have a consumer base, the fact that we have all of these nation members is they came to us because their palates aligned with ours. So I I, I do the same. When I taste it, I say, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. The nation members are going to love this. It's because I also love it. I share the same
1: passions for flavors that they do in, in a whiskey. I think this is a perfect moment to bring in the text from Michael Nolan.
0: Okay, perfect. All right. So I've got that queued up. I had it queued up, and then I lost it. This is what happens when other people text me. Believe it or not, Jason, you are not the only person that texts me. Fake news. <laughs> so, Michael Nolan's text... Hold on, i got to fucking find it. Here we go. It's
1: really straightforward.
0: So, Michael Nolan's text reads... And, and, and firstly, Michael, thank you for writing in. And, and also to Jigs, thanks again. To Dr. Matt, I never properly thanked him. Dr. Matt, thank you. Uh, so Michael Nolan says, another thought back to a year ago. How <laughs> <laughs> How is the Catoctin Creek in Kilhoman Cask looking? Is it ready to bottle? It's a great question, isn't it? <laughs> it's a great question because it's, this has been such a wonderful learning experience for us.
1: Exactly. Um,
0: You've been a bit closer to it than I have because you've been traveling back and forth to the distillery. Let's hear
1: it from you first. Yeah. Yeah. the, The short answer to Michael's question is no, it's not ready to bottle. The longer answer to michael's question is we had this conversation with Kirsty mccallum when she was on about whiskey not maturing linearly you don't start at point a and say if we just give this x amount of time we'll get to point b Mm. instead you go on a little bit of a roller coaster And in the beginning, you get a good influence from the wood there. You get a really nice presence from the oak. Then you start to get maybe the the liquid that was in before. Maybe it starts to shine through. Mm -hmm. And then maybe just as you think, oh, that's going to come to the fore. Okay, (laughs) this this peated sherry from Kilholman. Boy, that's about to take the driver's seat. It instead hops in the trunk and and you're kind of looking around to w- wondering where that just happened to go to. Yeah. And so we are watching through seasons, which has been absolutely fascinating and mm-hmm. pulling samples as we go through seasons here. And we've given the cask an additional winter. We're going to give it an additional, obviously spring to get to summer. And we're going to give it an additional summer to see if we can pull more from the wood. Try to get more of the sherry in there. What's been really surprising in the samples that we've pulled so far is that the peat isn't particularly present. Yeah, no. and quite me. And it. I, yeah. yeah, I and I stuck my nose in this empty cask. Easy, easy. I stuck it right in the bunghole and and it was peated and sherried and the cask that you'd expect mm. to receive from Kilhoman, and and filling it with sixty gallons of of what at that point was two year old Catoctin Creek uh, whiskey going mm-hmm, in there, mm-hmm. uh, two thirty gallons uh, went into into this cask. And the peat has not fought back as of the last sample against those sixty gallons of rye. And, and 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 you know, so so here we are, we're learning, you know, not linear, we're looking at a roller coaster journey. Sometimes flavors are coming in, sometimes flavors are going back out again. When we put it in there, mm. <laughs> that that sounds easy, rude. easy, pump the brakes, pump the brakes. When we re-racked that cask from Kilholman... Much better, much better. We thought to ourselves, we're going to finish this for a year. Yes. And then we're going to have some <laughs> Catoctin Creek that will be about three years, maybe four years old. Can't quite remember my dates. And it'll it'll have a bit of PX Sherry. It'll have a bit of Kilholman peat here. And we'll have this brand spanking new product that nobody's put together before. And we simply pulled a year out because it seemed like a useful number.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the whiskey is busy telling us, easy there, fellows, you, you might just have to pay attention. And it's one of those interesting things that we talk about where any bottle of whiskey wants to tell you a story. And assuming that it's non-chill filtered and has no artificial colour added to it... Mm. If you pay attention and use your eyes and use your nose and use your mouth, you'll get told a story by that whiskey yeah. in the bottle. Yeah. Yeah. And and you and I and I I love where we are with the company because you and I are starting to get into that part of the business with casks. Mm-hmm. And we said to this cask, "Hey, I'll give you a year. Get to know all the components and then we'll bottle you and the cask said that's not how this works that's not how any of this works and we are now saying how would you like another winter how would you like another summer that whiskey might come back to us and say how about another couple how about another three yeah or or it might come back and it might say put me in a bottle tomorrow exactly and and I'll I'll be
0: very frank with uh Can I still be Jason? You can still be Jason, but I'm gonna be frank Thank for you. now. Please. Now, I tasted the whiskey before it went into the Kilhoman cask. Really enjoyable rye. Mm-hmm. And then tasted it from just after it went into the cask. And then and then I think we did around three months, six months, nine months a year. Right? Okay. Ballpark, yep. Ballpark, yep, yep. ballpark and what i found was as we as this whiskey stayed in the cask longer the things that i loved about the rye started to mute a bit and the things that i loved about the sherry started to get squelched a bit and the things that i loved about the peat started to get stifled a bit and and i f- i feel as if <laughs> I feel as if it's similar to when you get a new pet and you have other pets and they're just starting to get to know each other and they don't know how to act and their own behaviors change slightly but soon they're going to figure out a new way and they're going to shine together and that's what I'm expecting to happen here and that's the snapshot that I want, that I'm eager to find. And it it could be a summer, right? It could be that, uh, that you know, I, I don't know, but I'm, it's been so fun tasting the
1: evolution and learning from the evolution. Well, and that's the beauty of this collaboration with Scott and Becky at Catoctin Creek is that they know their spirit. They know what their spirit does. But here we have a 60-gallon cask, a 59-gallon cask. And we have pX sherry and we have you know your peated spirit that was in that cask previously. Mm-hmm. Scott and Becky haven't played around with their own flavors yeah. in a cask like that. yeah And so as we're tasting samples we're, we're discussing it with Scott and Becky. Mm-hmm. Where do you think this is at? Where do you think this will go? What do you expect from this? Given, you know, they're now 10 years into this and they know, they know what they're doing. Uh, you and I, you know, are playing on weekends. <laughs> but it's, 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 it's so much fun. But, but again, even the people who have been working with their spirit for 10 years are watching and anticipating and giving their best guesses. Yeah. And that's what I love about this particular project. And I think the nation knows, and and you know, wonderful Michael Nolan knows, we're only gonna bottle it when it's ready. There's no two ways about that. And holy moly, you know, does it end up being a ten year old from Catoctin Creek? Does it end up being a twenty-year-old from Catoctin Creek? Oh my gosh. Right? It's you know, we've no idea, absolutely none. And so we'll we'll check up on it again soon. Uh, I'm excited to see what this winter has done. It has been a particularly cold winter for us in Virginia. I and, yeah. and and if we can get a scorching summer on the back of this, we'll have had some of that, you know, uh, you know passage of spirit in and out of the oak. Uh, we'll see if we've pulled a, a few more phenolic compounds from the wood. But yeah, yeah, I love it. It's, it's just so much fun. This next one, I think, touches a
0: bit on what we're talking about here with with casks and and what. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Just cast terminology, actually. So a, uh-huh. a bit of a segue, a bit of a a segway pivot, a pivoted segue. It's not. It's not so much a pivot as it is a slide over. All right, here we go. So this feels like a rich, smooth slide. Oh, Jesus Christ. Show me the proof, Jason. So this came in from Vadim Perlovsky. And he says, Koa and I, and and I could have the name wrong, could be Kwa or could be Koa, K
1: H O A. Can I, just for a second, before we get to the question, We've talked all of season four about Travis Williams sending us a couple of Glencairns that were just beautiful and and, and very well received. Mm. Vadim sent me a (laughs) wizard's hat Glencairn Uh topper uh that is just (laughs) magnificent. And I smile every time I look at it. Well, do you know
0: Vadim sent me a topper as well? but it's a crown, kind of like you'd see on a little cherub. <laughs> it's absolutely That's very fantastic. cool. Thank you for those, Vadim. Yeah, very kind, so
1: very thoughtful. So, absolutely wonderful.
0: So, so back to his message here. He says, um, Kwa and I, again, Koa or Kwa, and I are sitting here discussing sherry cask maturation and figured mm-hmm. we can ask an expert to weigh in. And in the absence of that, I can text you, <laughs> Jim Wet sherry cask versus dry sherry cask, question mark. Also, cask terminology between first fill, refill, second fill, traditional whiskey
1: cask, etc. So there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah. Let, let me jump into the second part because this, this jibes up very nicely with what I was just talking about, about bottles want to tell you a story. And when it comes to first fill, so, so just very quickly, yeah, for anybody who's also wondering about that. So imagine if you will, in Kentucky, you've got a new charred oak cask. Its size might be barrel, but let's go with cask for the moment because that's a generic catch-all. So you've got a new charred oak cask, You've matured your bourbon in that for X amount of time. You've now, you can only use it one time to be bourbon in the new charred oak. You now send it off to a Scottish producer and they put Scotch new make in it for the very first time. I I like using that term Scotch because it's not Scotch yet until it gets to three years. But you're in Scotland and you've made new make that will become Scotch. You can call it Scottish new make. Scottish, Scottish. If it's not Scottish, it's crap. So (laughs) as a Scottish producer, you put your new make spirit into that formerly used bourbon cask. And we would call that a first fill because it's the first time we in Scotland are putting spirit into it. And now we might use that For finishing, we might use that for full maturation. We might use that for partial maturation. But that's the first time it's being used, regardless of how long we use it for. We empty it, we bottle the liquid, we then have an empty cask and we use it a second time. We've now got a second fill. We're probably less likely to use that for finishing if it's come from Kentucky. Mm. We're more likely to give a, a decent maturation in that everybody's different. Your mileage may vary. We then use it. We empty the liquid. We bottle the liquid. We sell the liquid. And now we've got an empty cask that we may use a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time. Those are going to be called refills. All we've done is refill it at that point. Now, Mm -hmm. so far, I've told you, how we use this nomenclature (laughs) within this company. However, some companies only refer to first fill and refill. We used it a first time, and then after that, we simply refilled it. What you also find is some, you know, whatever the needs might be, maybe you need blending stock to leave your distillery to go off to, to another blender, Maybe you've just used really, really tired, really well-used, multiple refilled casks. And they might not impart any colour. They might not impart any flavour. They, they might just be, and I, I talk about this in my tastings, they may have just been used to stop the whiskey from becoming a puddle on a warehouse floor. <laughs> right? huh Right. So so there's a number of ways in which you can use the language very carefully and very formally, but it doesn't it it won't necessarily capture the full use of those casts.
0: That's that's 100 percent correct. So a couple I, I want to add on to what you said here. So your descriptions are perfect, right? The first time you use it, it's the first time the Scots use a bourbon barrel. Or or a sherry cask. They're going to call it first fill. Or sometimes they'll say fresh bourbon, fresh sherry. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, also true. The second time you use that cask, some will call it second fill. Some will call it refill. And then... There's refill, which could be third, fourth, fifth use, and so on. But again, some people <laughs> will call refill, will call second fill refill. So you, you've got a bit of squishiness there going on in terminology. But let's, let's think about how unimportant that terminology could be. Again, just mm-hmm. reinforcing your point. And I'll use the example of our 26-year-old uh, Cameron Bridge which was 26 years in a refill sherry butt. If you look at the liquid, it's dark. It looks like it's first fill sherry. The sherry influence on it is massive. So the first two uses may have been for a very short finishing period of just a few months, and then the rest of its life was the whiskey that then became ours. So this is why... It's good to know the nomenclature. It's good to know the terminology, but understand that second fill could mean a multitude. It could be the difference of decades.
1: Well, which is why we've often got times where we could say, Oh, that, that second fill has really done a lot of work here. And that ties back to what I'm saying about buying non-colored, non-chill filtered whiskey, Mm. where, The colour in there, and certainly for us in the realm of single casks, where there's really nowhere to hide, and certainly no way to bolster, you're getting to see that cask telling its story, right? And you might say, well, it says refill on the bottle here, but gosh, that is much darker. (laughs) Well, there you go. You just filled in the gap a second ago, Joshua, right? Which is, oh, maybe it was a short first finishing, maybe a short second finishing, And then here you've got a still active refill. So it's so important to me to allow the whiskey to tell its story.
0: Yes, which which can be difficult when you're buying, Absolutely. Or you want the whiskey to tell the story, but if you don't want to lay down the money for that whiskey to tell you the story, then you have to rely on, Label detail, and hope that the bottle is clear and not brown or green, because color is going to help dictate. Will will give you an idea of the the overall richness and flavor. See what I did there? See you did. So, and, and right, and this is why we try to add as many details as we can. But again, back to the idea of the Cameron Bridge. Refill sherry. If you were just reading the label, you'd assume that the color would be much lighter.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so return to this part from Vadim here about wet and dry sherry casks.
0: So this is interesting.
1: Basically, what
0: I think what they're asking here is: Do, do you have a benefit from maturing your whiskey using a wet sherry cask? ...compared to a dry sherry cask. So what does that mean? It means, if, if I'm understanding his question correctly... ...it means that the whiskey producer would receive the sherry casks... ...from the sherry producer, still intact, still with a little bit of sherry in there... ...hence wet, still with sherry. Or is that producer getting the sherry cask from a cooper... ...who buys multiple sherry casks from the sherry producer breaks them down, brings them in-house and then rebuild sherry casks for the whiskey producer. And my general understanding, and and you can correct me if you feel I'm wrong or if, if you know, if you have knowledge beyond what I have here, is my understanding is the breaking down of casks is more typical for bourbon barrels because you're bringing those casks from overseas or from rum casks as you're bringing those casks from overseas, where with sherry casks, because Spain is just right there, you can throw a sulfur candle in there keep a bit more sherry in there to make sure the wine doesn't go bad and then just ship those casks intact
1: Although mm. at the same time we are hearing from more and more people in the industry that bourbon is coming over we are they, we are yes you know for, for for years the adage in the industry was why would you ship fresh air why would you ship American fresh air to Scotland uh, <laughs> which means you know why would you send a full cask mm. uh, not broken down and the idea of breaking it down and strapping it to a pallet you could fill a container with far more barrels but when it then made its way over to Scotland as you rightly point out a moment ago th- the cooper is just in the business of rebuilding and just taking you know whatever stave I can get here to put with that stave there yeah and oftentimes going from a barrel which as I mentioned earlier is a size to a hogshead which is a larger size, mm-hmm. and you're actually adding in some staves to get that increase in your shape. So I'm I'm really happy to hear of more producers in Scotland shipping in what Vadim might call wet bourbon casks as opposed to dry bourbon casks. So I, I don't think it matters whether you're bourbon or sherry or wine or what have you, you definitely, from what we're hearing from producers in the industry, Mm -hmm. you definitely want to be using wet. And I I can't help but think back to one of our last conversations with Graham Cool, when he was still with Glenn Murray before moving off to Dingle. And he was talking about how important it was to fill while wet and he was going out and sourcing different types of of wine casks, sherry casks, bringing them back to the distillery, but then making sure he was ready to get new make spirit into them or to re rack into them as well. So, uh, I you know, and we had another conversation with Jim McEwen, where Jim McEwen was saying, well, far, far. "You know the 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 the, the end of." of sending your flat packs to Coopers was absolutely fantastic. Absolutely wonderful. And and he thought the the integrity of the barrel was preserved and the quality of the barrel was preserved when shipping wholesale yeah. uh, from from America to Scotland.
0: Yeah, I, I I remember him saying that that you know one one of the industry's biggest tragedies was the advent of the bourbon hogshead because mm. what a barrel could do if if allowed to remain intact will do more for scotch whiskey than than he thought the, the hogshead could ever do and think too about what happens when when coopers are producing hogsheads and, and i want to be very clear here so much of whiskey in Scotland is being matured in hogsheads. It doesn't mean that that whiskey is going to be bad. I think what Jim McEwen and then others like Anthony Wills at Kilholman, what they're looking for is a consistency. Right? If the cooper is really a puzzle maker and is getting barrel staves to produce a hogshead, all he or she is looking to do is, is grab the stave that completes the puzzle. But then you have to steam that cask to keep it intact. The only thing that's holding a, a cask intact is the moisture. So you're steaming out some of the flavor that has been stuck inside the wood. And you think about uh, our friend David Sturk when he received those,
1: those French wine casks. Mm-hmm. and i think of that often i <laughs> oftentimes wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night yeah. remembering this you said the, the the number
0: one reason i purchased these casts from you is because of the 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 richness and flavor that, that that wine would put into the wood that the spirit would then take out and now you've taken that those characteristics out using steam and uh and so you can see why a, a distillery or a bottler would want to fill into a fresh cask.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I, I love talking about casks. I, I wouldn't say there's a question that we haven't enjoyed talking about today. With that in mind, Joshua, oh, we might want to get out of here on one more question. So our very dear Jess... You know how they say, saving the best for last? It's not to diminish anyone who's come before. But there's only one Jessica Lomas. And she has taken the time <laughs> to write in. And the good news is she's not really asking her own question. She is relaying a question from somebody with whom she was having a conversation. Ah,
0: so. okay, okay.
1: Uh, and she's, she's very smart. You'll like her salutation. Oh, hello, dearest J&J. Side comment, (laughs) not specifying an order. You don't catch me that easily. After a discussion the other day with a friend about the 10th anniversary of Single Cask Nation, Mazel. Thank you, Jess. Mazel to the tizzle. I was asked what your personal favourite bottles you've released are. I will guess I'll make it easier by allowing Jubilee bottling if that's your pick. (laughs) I know you've talked about what you'd like to bottle in the future, but what about taking a little dive into the archives? Can't wait to hear your choices. Cheers, the other J. And I just, I love the fact that she's able to sign off as the other J. And not only do we know who that is, the nation knows who that is. Thousands and thousands of people know who that other Jay is. Isn't that awesome? That's, that's fantastic. Oh, Gosh, she's... tens of thousands. I don't know. Listeners of the podcast. Oh, yeah.
0: That's thats a very good point. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah. she's, she's a true gem, and I appreciate her bringing that question across. I can say without hesitation my absolute favorite bottling that we've ever done was our 28-year-old Undisclosed Bayside. Period. Full stop. Done. Really? Yeah. Not, not,
1: not to undermine the whiskey, but really, 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 really. Be, not, not that I feel you have to justify this, but I loved it too. But why? Why is it your number one favoriteest best of? It's a was s- it rich
0: and smooth. <laughs> it was rich and smooth, <laughs> and it was high proof. And uh, and I did. Uh, Don't even know you anymore. <laughs> no, you know, for me, like I, I know you, right? You <laughs> you have a passion. You have an absolute passion, almost to the point of being fetishist about it for young Isla whiskey. My Okay. My passions, okay. my 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 palate has always leaned toward spicier This is true. Spicier Highlanders or, or side whiskey.
1: This is true. I don't know how, but I I often forget that. You know? Right. I, like your love affair with Glenn Morangey when when you and I first met. And, and my love affair with young Isla whiskeys mm-hmm. when we first met. The thought that those two gentlemen would launch an independent bottling company where either one can veto the selection of the other one without any justification <laughs> is remarkable. It's remarkable. Absolutely yeah. remarkable. I think of us having such similar palates and such similar we do. love affairs, but but we do with whiskey. We,
0: we do. There's there's no doubt about it. However, we have favorites, right? Ooh. Yeah. The things that you love in Isla Whiskeys, I love in Isla Whiskey's. The things yeah, yeah, that yeah. I love, yeah, yeah, in, right, and vice versa. So, but with this with this undisclosed space side, it exhibited everything that I love about that distillery, how the spiciness can balance out a huge sherry presence, how the underlying floral components are only made more pretty by the malty backbone. And the cask that That's we it. right and the cask that we found just said you you want to know why this distillery is great. This is why that distillery is great, and fuck if I'm not disappointed. I don't have any more of that whiskey left. I, I don't have a drop of it left. I have none. Yeah. None. Yep. Yep. And and I just I just think from from strictly a flavor profile standpoint, I think that was the best cask of
1: whiskey we ever bottled. Interesting. Interesting. And you. Yeah, I I pretty quickly go to mine f- for slightly different reasons. I I cut my teeth mm-hmm. on the LeFroig distillery. Mm-hmm. And and LeFroig was the first moment when I knew, okay, pe- peated whiskey is what I'm here for. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. this has my attention. I like this a lot. And I think back to our first LeFroig. and it would have been six years old mm-hmm. and and $85 a bottle. Oh, we'll forget that one. Oh my gosh. And I and I loved what it was doing. And, and again, you know, not to belabor the point through the entire episode here, but... The Lefroy DNA is in there. Mm-hmm. We we got our knuckles wrapped for for using the term iodine, in on the the truncated label <laughs> yes, note, and <laughs> by the TTB and by the, not by Lefroy. Right? Just so everybody, yeah, no, clear. no, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good good <laughs> point of clarification. And and so so it's it's eighty five dollars. six years old, and it's doing what I think, you know, classic uh, classic Laphroaig does, which is manifest the iodine and then as the years have gone on and we've released other lefroig's we've now reached a point where getting Lefroig is incredibly difficult mm-hmm. and even if you can get Lefroig you often can't call it Lefroig mm-hmm. you have to give it its, it's blender's name it's teaspoon name and and if you can get your hands on that it's very expensive mm-hmm. and and reaches a point where we're not comfortable in that pricing on it. And so as much as I was over the moon getting a beloved distillery into our bottling, early doors, and mm. it was our second release, right? Our second online release. With the Dow Moore, right? Correct. Yeah, yep. yeah. Yep. And our first Glenn Murray.
0: Yep, 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 yep.
1: And so only since then, as we've watched it become more and more difficult to procure and more and more expensive, have I become even even more proud of that first LaFroy. And it, it really stands to this day as one of my absolute favourites because of what it achieved and of what it represented.
0: So... Take out achievement and representation aside, would you have a favorite
1: bottling just from a flavor
0: standpoint?
1: So uh, like a desert island dram from our own archive. Something that regardless of the story, regardless of the context, if somebody says, here's the liquid in a flagon, you get to drink this for the rest of your days on this desert island. Do I have one?
0: Yep. So where mine was the undisclosed 28-year-old side, what's yours?
1: First, Chicago Jubilee. The... The light whiskey, you're shaking your head, the (laughs) light whiskey that had spent time in the ex rye cask, which was an ex-beer cask that had had fresh mustard seeds in with the beer that then had this light whiskey that just became unlike anything else I have anywhere in my collection and it's 65.1% alcohol. I just, it's one that I reach for. If I walk into my office and I think, what am I drinking tonight? If I can't think of anything, nothing comes to mind, that Chicago Jubilee bottling always hits the spot. Well, I'm shaking my head because
0: because you are a single malt person Mm -hmm. who Mm -hmm. is Scottish and Mm -hmm. grew up in Scotland Mm-hmm. And he was very proud to be a Scotsman. And you are mm-hmm. saying the whiskey that we bottled that would have you to your end of your days on a desert island
1: is an American whiskey. But <laughs> but it's not a million miles away from Scottish grain whiskey. Okay. Continuous column still distillation mm-hmm. of a mixed mash bill to a very high ABV mm-hmm. put into refill wood to spend some time hanging out. It just so happens that we then met it and we put it in some X rye and, and then we put in some X beer and we mm. put in some mustard seeds into the beer and and we just elevated that existence. Yeah. And so yeah. you know, un- unlike bourbon or rye, which didn't come naturally, to my palate and I've spent years A couple of decades now Exploring those categories mm-hmm. Light whiskey Immediately came naturally To my palate Interesting. Okay. And so I, I think I think As much as yes this particular Expression has lived a life I still think at the heart of it Is something that's very familiar to me And growing up in Ayrshire You know what's the distillery in our county Girvan. Yeah <laughs> right? yep. You want to talk DNA, Dr. Matt? There you go. <laughs> right? It's Ayrshire DNA, right? At least back seven centuries. But so so I get the sense then that if if I wasn't answering the way you did, mm-hmm. you didn't necessarily answer the way I did. So if as you look back into the archives, is there a, a project, a bottling that speaks to you as an achievement? that is a favorite of yours? And, and I've, I've got a sneaking suspicion that I might know the answer, but I will give you the floor.
0: Well, it's not a specific bottling, but it is a project. And it is our, um, our woodcut series, right? We're, half, we're only halfway... Interesting. Th- we're only halfway through it, but think of what we achieved. We bottled a 30-year-old Bowmore, which is 80s Bowmore. It's a particular (laughs) decade that you and I are in love with, Mm -hmm. fascinated by. And and that we said from the very beginning, if we can find some FWP Bowmore, and anybody who doesn't know what FWP is, just go ahead and and Google that, uh, then, then we would be happy campers and think, too, about the price we released it at, $395. Yeah. When other bottlers, and I'm not going to mention any names, were releasing it for 600 pounds, 900 pounds, their own version of, of 30 to 33-year-old uh, Beaumont. And, and then think, too, Beaumont released another in their in their Sea Dragon series. I think it was 36 years old. And that was almost $3,000. So I, I feel very proud of the fact that we were able to release yeah. a 30-year-old FWP 80s Bowmore for under $400. And then add to that, the second in the series, our 30-year-old Imperial. It's not my favorite distillery, but it's the distillery I collect the most of. It's a shuttered distillery. It, again, less than $400 this time the tariffs affected us and we were still able to get it in at 395 while while others were were charging more i think we bought it at a good time before prices went through the roof yeah. and yep. and it's just as remarkable in my opinion as the Bowmore is for all that I love about Beaumore, ours did what I wanted it to do. For all that I love about Imperial, ours did what I wanted it to do.
1: Yeah, no, I'd agree with you on on both of those, and I'm I'm thoroughly enjoying the woodcut series. I'm excited to see what we bring out for the third. Mm-hmm. See, honestly, it feels like two years since we released the imperial portion of the Woodcut series. Doesn't I feel it. like we're wildly behind on the Woodcut series, even though August of this year will be right in line. August of 19, August of 20, August of 21. <laughs> i But I feel like it, we've missed a year. It's insane how that feels. Yeah. But with that said, I thought oh. you would select oh. <laughs> the nine-year-old Brooke Laddie. Where, and just as we're talking about cast selection earlier, you believed in that cask and you believed in the nation's response to that cask Mm -hmm. much more than I did. And I, (laughs) I suggested that we pass on it. And you said, no, 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 there's, there's something here that will speak to Brookladdy fans who know old style Brookladdy. And and I was willing to put my trust in you, put my faith in you. And then when it was offered up to the nation, it sold out very well at a time when we were not selling out in minutes. Yeah. It sold out very quickly, and those Brookladdy fans in the nation said, "I love the old style Brookladdy feel that this has." And I, you know, kudos to you. That was that was well selected, and and it it had the result that that you had had argued for that you said it would have
0: so just out of curiosity
1: i know you love port
0: charlotte and i know you love mm. Octimore. and i know there's there's pr- plenty of bruchladdies you like as well yeah can yeah. you remind me what about that cask you didn't didn't appreciate
1: <laughs> as soon as you mention old style bruchladdy To me, it can come across as flat, insipid, absent, Mm. right? You have to be at one with how delicate it is and how subtle it Mm -hmm. is. And you have to be willing to spend time with the dram to really appreciate what it brings to the table. And that's why as soon as you said to me, fans of old style Brookladdy will get this that that was a compelling argument because it it does it speaks to a time yeah. and it speaks to an era and it speaks to a style and so and it, and it and it did it did for for people for people who are fans of that it resonated so yeah, yeah kudos yeah
0: that that's it's such an interesting point and and, and maybe we'll leave on this i often have ali chilton in mind when thinking about different decades for distilleries. Right? He's, mm-hmm. he's tracked Bowmore, and he knows what 60s and 70s, and he hates it, 80s Bowmore does. And he has a particular uh, attraction to early 2000s Bowmores and, and, and how they produce spirits. And it just makes me think back to... Oh, jeez, whose question was it? Uh, it may have been Jig's question, you know, IB versus OB. Through independent bottlings, you can really ex- more easily explore the nuances and the changes in distilleries from decade to decade to decade because there, yeah, there very have much so. been changes. And if that is something of interest to you, it's a really good reason to if, if you have the funds to do it and you have the palate and the patience to do it you could seek this stuff out and and discover different styles of distillate from the same exact distillery depending on what was going on in that particular year or decade i think it'd be fascinating
1: it's it's a perfect point to leave on because we ask that question of our guest who opens up the first episode of season five. And I I will let our listeners know the decade in question is the 70s. Yes. But we will leave the distillery to remain anonymous until, until we kick off season five. Which means, Joshua, mm-hmm. season four's in the books. And as I do often, but especially at this time in the season... Mm-hmm. I sincerely thank you for all of your work and dedication to the editing, the production, the just the putting this together. And obviously One Nation Under Whiskey is no longer the only <laughs> pad cost in which we indulge. But every two weeks, you're able to put out another couple of hours, two and a half hour episode, um, sometimes with a year in review, it's three and a quarter. Sometimes with a mailbag episode, they can be a little on the longer side. So so thank you for for all of that. Thank you to our listeners. You know, without Joshua, we don't have a podcast. Without our listeners, we don't have anybody listening to it. And as we're hearing, you know, Philippines, Scotland, we do have an email from further afield that we will include in the first episode of season five as well. Um, Unfortunately, we have run out of time in this episode. And then, of course, how deep do we go in America with the nation over here? It's remarkable, absolutely remarkable.
0: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I I can I cannot wait for season five opener. Obviously, we're not going to mention the name of the guest but this is someone we've wanted on the podcast since the beginning of the podcast. Absolutely, yep, yep. And while we've recorded about an hour and 20 with this person, we likely got through 40% of what we wanted to cover. And we already that's have- That's generous. Right, that's being generous. <laughs> and we already have a, a second meeting in the books for part two. So keep hmm. that in mind.
1: Cannot wait. Oh my god. Cannot wait. And what I liked especially- As we've chased this guest and tried to make this happen, once we got their ear, they said to us during the interview, (laughs) I get the sense that we're only scratching the surface here. Let's do a part two. (laughs) Yes, 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 we will.
0: I love that that was not our suggestion. That was the suggestion of our guest. Wonderful. Yeah.
1: Wonderful Joshua Let's
0: close out season four Alright Jason It's been wonderful Thank you for thanking me all the time uh, <laughs> It's what I do
1: It's what makes me an incredible husband Both at home and at work <laughs> And thank
0: you For you your, your insight is always fantastic And just talking whiskey For these Going on 11-ish Years for you and me, yeah, Uh, Yeah. has has been wonderful, and being able to bring uh, our listeners into the conversation uh, is 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 nothing short of a treat. So I say cheers to you, beautiful. I say cheers to our listeners, and I say, L'chaim, (laughs) Slonjetov, Slonjetov. Oh, look at that. That rang. That sang and rang. Oh. Ah. Swana. That is a perfect harmonic. At the same time. Hold on. Jason, 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 Jason. Grab your things. Grab your things. Here we go. You ready? On the count of three. One, two, three. It's it's close. It's almost as perfect as my pitch, but not, not perfect. Thank you